Welcome to NCIS Reports from the Field. I'm Lee Clements, your host. Today's report comes from Special Agent David Watson, who is a career NIS and NCIS Special Agent, working in the field for over 30 years, 1975 to 2006. We'll learn of some fascinating investigations in his time aboard the USS Midway as an afloat agent. What happens to American sailors when they're put into Japanese prisons? and his work in the fraud arena, and his recovery of American taxpayer funds from businesses that were out to defraud our country. We'll learn of problems on U.S. Navy ships that were repaired overseas, and what happens when the wrong parts are used, and the catastrophic effects of those incidences. And finally, the terrible accident of a U.S. Navy ship and a Turkish naval vessel. What happens when a missile strikes a friendly vessel? David Watson had an amazing career, and we're excited to bring you this report today. I give you Special Agent David Watson. Well, hi, Dave. You're looking good, sir, in uh, Texas, like Texas is doing you well. Hey, Texas suits me just fine. And that's from a guy who was born in Louisiana, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As they say here, I, I wasn't born in Texas, but I, I got here as quickly as I could. My well, listen, case, I, I kept I, coming back. I really appreciate you uh, participating in this project, the, you know, the NCIS reports in the field. Um, as we just talked a few minutes ago before we started taping, um, you know, the whole aspect of this is to uh, focus on the career of the person that I'm interviewing. Uh, so this is really your interview. We'll talk about anything you want to talk about. But there are a few things that we talked about before the interview uh, that we, I want to talk about, you know, focus on uh, at some point in the interview. Uh, but, you know, let's just start out about you. Tell me about your history, where you were born, and what you did as a young man. Well, Lee, I was born in a small town in North Louisiana called Homer. It's uh, named after the Greek poet. Very nice. I don't know why, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there it is. I think there were about uh, 4,500 people in the town when I was born and when I was growing up, uh, it's uh, like most small towns, it has shrunk since then. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in uh, not typically what most people think of as Louisiana. It's uh, the hills of Northern Louisiana, almost the foothills of the Ozarks. Wow. So we were more hillbillies than Cajuns. <laughs> we ate uh, fried chicken and instead of crawfish, although uh, <laughs> and we've learned to eat the crawfish too now. Um, it was really a great place to grow up and a great time in the in the 50s and 60s. Um, I went to the, the local public high school where my mom was a, a teacher and uh, later a guidance counselor. Mm -hmm. um, there were 40 people in my graduating class in high school, and two of those were my cousins. <laughs> that's uh, interesting. Well, you know, first of all, I didn't, I guess somebody that's never been, I mean, I've gone to New Orleans many times. I've spent a lot of time in Baton Rouge, but I've never really been up, uh, you know, the north side of Louisiana. I didn't realize it was so hilly up there. Yeah, it's, uh, we've got a, a hill there with it. It's actually uh, called a mountain, and I think it's 330 feet above sea level. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
the hill, they called the mountain. That's awesome. Yeah, so we, we <laughs> could uh, tell a lot of stories about that. There's a lot of uh, the place that uh, that we're trying to sell in Louisiana is right off of Louisiana Highway 146, which no one there knows that number. Mm -hmm. They call it the White Lightning Road. <laughs> so I understand what they why they call it the White Lightning Road. So that's yeah. a that's a transportation route, right? It is indeed, and uh, <laughs> it, it curves in and out and around and up and down over quite a few hills. Yeah. So tell me about your family when you're growing up. Uh, how many people were in your family? <clears throat> My dad. Uh, um, I'm one of two. Um, my dad was a World War II veteran and uh, a fighter pilot, mm -hmm. loved airplanes, but uh, he had to come home at the end of the war and give up flying and earn a living. Um, my mom was a school teacher. She uh, really uh, was a, a, a great inspiration to me. She was brilliant. She went back to school, to graduate school, and got her master's degree in counseling and guidance when I was around 13. Mm -hmm. And then she kept going to graduate school and accumulated another 30-something hours of graduate credit uh, before she retired from teaching. My dad had uh, worked for my grandfather initially and then uh, ended up buying the business and so was a small business owner Mm -hmm. He did wholesale gasoline, oil, very, everything that the old time service stations knew, mm -hmm. tires, spark plugs, and so forth. So from an early age, I was hanging over the, the top of the tanker truck, filling it with what I now know was toxic leaded gasoline. <laughs> and I, I probably lost a good 30 IQ points breathing that <laughs> stuff in. Uh, oh, that's good. But I, I grew up with a dad who uh, I thought could could fix or build anything. Wow. Uh, you know, if we couldn't afford it, he would build it. Mm -hmm. I, I remember uh, once when I was a teenager, a young teenager, he just decided that we should have a pontoon barge. Mm -hmm. And so he built one in the backyard. Wow. And of course, there was no water in the backyard. <laughs> How far were you from a river or lake? We were a good 30 miles. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> he, you know, it all bolted together. And once he got it like he wanted it, he took it apart and loaded it in the truck. And we took it to the lake, oh, put okay. it back together and pushed the darn thing in the water. All, all floating. I was going to ask you, it seemed like he was pretty talented with his hands. I was wondering, did he make the trailer as well? But he, you guys took it apart and put it in a truck, huh? Yeah, we put it in the truck. Uh, <laughs> And uh, a friend of his saw it and liked it so much. He said, well, build me one too. So the, the next thing I knew, we were building another one in the backyard. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. That is wild. That is wild. So, so when you went to high school, um, you, you noticed in, in the notes that you sent me that um, you were an avid uh, photographer and you played in the band. Is that right? I was in the band at first. Uh, I wasn't particularly good at music, but I could march. <laughs> and so the band director, <laughs> the band director was happy enough with that. He said, "Just you know, don't don't play too loud if you can't do right." What instrument were you playing? I played the trombone. Oh, wow. so I had to be you careful. just did this a lot. Yeah, it looked really good. 
<laughs> and uh, that's good so stuff. At the end of my, uh, I think it was my 10th grade year, the uh, librarian who had many other hats uh, said, David, would you like to be the school photographer? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I really don't know much about that. She said, well, take the camera over the summer and figure it out. And so that's exactly what I did. That's awesome. Uh, I had a handheld light meter and an old twin lens reflex camera. And for the next two years, I was running along the sidelines at football games and every other event that the school had. And, and I figured the camera out. So you, were, so you were passionate about the Sunny 16 rule that I didn't learn till I was in at the training academy. Yeah. You know, from Jack Tuckish, I, um, I knew that. <laughs> but I didn't, I don't guess I called it that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, the little piece of paper that came with a roll of film, I would just save it and stick it in my pocket That's and uh, carry that darn thing around. And <laughs> it was on there, you know, there wow. it was. Do you still uh, do a lot of photography these days? Um, I haven't done a lot lately. You know, it's, it's uh, everybody has a camera in their pocket now. So oh, yeah, sure. And they're pretty good cameras too. They're amazingly better cameras than uh, the, <laughs> the stuff I had. But I, I, you know, developed my own film in the in the bathroom and uh, printed black and white prints. And I, I really got into it uh, with all my NIS and NCIS career. I almost always had a camera with me, and so got boxes my wife says what are you going to do with those things you know <laughs> boxes of slides and pictures oh my goodness everywhere great stuff to keep though i mean that's way kathy yeah. is my wife she has boxes and boxes of pictures you know because she was a big camera fanatic too and yeah i'm not sure we're going to do with all those pictures <laughs> well maybe um <laughs> leave them to some family member that may or may not be interested yeah maybe uh, so i think uh for my parents i got a curiosity about how things work and from my from my mom a, a love of learning that um just didn't end so when i went to college after school um i majored in mechanical engineering for the first two years okay and then decided that that just wasn't for me sure that um I needed to go somewhere else with that, but I had all this science background and I had this engineering drawing background and mm -hmm. some, um, um, mechanical engineering machine mm -hmm. shop. I knew how things were made. Yeah, sure. Uh, hands on and, uh, uh, corrosion engineering. I learned, you know, what, what could go wrong with metals and materials. Um, all of that ended up paying off for me later, which I could, I, you know, yeah, I'll talk sure. about later, but uh, I switched to accounting. Okay. Uh, big change. I had to, you know, <laughs> rush through pile on hours and go to summer school to catch up. And, uh, you know, luckily uh, all that worked out. Yeah. And it would uh, benefit you in the future as well. Right. That, that paid off as well because mm -hmm. uh, I could, I could talk to engineers, I could talk to accountants, sure. and then I could translate what they were saying 
and explain it to a federal prosecutor mm-hmm. who could then turn around perhaps and explain it to 12 people who couldn't seem to figure out how to get out of jury duty. <laughs> Good stuff, man. I so, clean that up a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, but, so how did you get uh, interested in the Navy? I was, uh, the course of the Vietnam War was going on Mm-hmm. while I was in college mm-hmm. and I had a four-year window college deferment okay. uh, which expired or was going to expire when I graduated mm-hmm. and I was walking through the student center one day and there's a Navy recruiter sitting there uh-huh. uh, it was 1971 um, I was interviewing for jobs and not there just weren't All the accounting graduates were getting jobs, but they weren't getting the jobs necessarily that they wanted. Mm -hmm. Engineering graduates were not getting jobs. They were pumping gas in some cases. It was a bad year to to be finishing college. Oh, wow. Uh, So I walked over to the Navy recruiter and I I said, what kind of opportunities have you got for uh, somebody with an accounting degree? Yeah. And he said, what's your vision? I wore contact lenses. I was legally blind without them. (laughs) So I told him the truth and he said, supply. Yeah, baby. All right, baby. I said, whatever. (laughs) So I signed up. One of my other buddies signed up and, uh, they uh, shipped us off to Newport, Rhode Island, to OCS in mm-hmm. October of 71. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought at the time it's the coldest place on earth. Oh, sure. So you were there in the wintertime, right? Over over the winter, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it, it was pretty brutal, but I, I've since found there are colder places. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> it came close. It, it was pretty so- miserable. So, so you're, you're OCS officer candidate school uh, for the audience out there and and you are uh, going through basically a basic training, right? Yeah. You have any special remembrances of your Navy chief or the, are the people who were training you? Well, I, I remember, uh, you know, my uh, uh, company officer Mm -hmm. was uh, Lieutenant Smith, who was actually an aviator. Oh, wow. uh, really, really like that guy. He, yeah. he was just, uh, he was great. Now the, you know, the course, first person you meet when you get off the bus there is some anonymous guy who yells at you, no matter what you do <laughs> and everything you do is wrong. And, and, uh, you know, just get ready for a pretty miserable day yeah. and a, a real close haircut. Um, <laughs> So, but, yeah, uh, so when you showed up there at OCS, did you have the hippie hair or did you have regular uh, hair? You know, I tried to get what I thought was a pretty reasonable haircut in advance. <laughs> uh, but it, it, I was going to get the Navy's version anyway. <laughs> so, I, uh, so some of the other guys showed up with the college hippie hair uh, and uh, we all ended up with the same haircut. So. so when you stand there in line, seeing these guys get their haircut, where they're, I mean, where they're, I'm sure there were guys that had the same feeling. Well, I'll just get as short as haircut I can thinking I've got this Navy haircut 
and then I'll, you know, they'll just kind of pass me by, but that's not the truth. That's not the case, right? Uh, didn't happen. <laughs> you need, you need a regulation Navy haircut. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were not allowed to bring any civilian clothes, you know, other than what we were wearing. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> we weren't allowed off the base for a couple of months. Uh, oh, wow. <clears throat> you know, we, we had to stand duty, but it, you know, it was, uh, the early seventies. So mm-hmm. things had loosened up over what they had been or what they understand they had been earlier. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were all, well, all of my company and most of the class were either civil engineers who were, you know, going to be CB officers or supply corps people. Interesting. And <clears throat> so some of the stuff we just had a lot of trouble taking seriously. <laughs> and I, I got lucky. I drew a roommate who was former enlisted who mm-hmm. had gotten OCS uh, after a couple of years of enlisted service. Mm-hmm. He knew, you know, where the BS was and where it wasn't. And uh-huh. uh, John Hammett was his name. He was uh-huh. just a great guy. Uh-huh. He was from Rhode Island, so he knew the area. And mm-hmm. um, after, you know, he showed me how to how to make sure my bed sheet was tight enough to bounce a quarter, and mm-hmm. you know, all those silly things like that. How to how to polish the floor until it looked like the mirror. We got all that that stuff done. I had a little bit of an advantage on the uh, the other guys having John there. Yeah. Uh, after we got permission to leave for the weekend, mm-hmm. John had a girlfriend uh, down the road in Providence, and he wanted to go see her on the weekends. <laughs> Sometimes he wanted to stay a little longer than he was supposed to, and he would call. And asked for me, and he'd say, "David, I'm running a little late getting back. Mm-hmm. Would you, you know, dress up and walk out the back door and walk around to the quarter deck, walk in the front door, and go in and check in as me? Just cover up your name tag. No problem, John. I got it. So <laughs> I would go out the back door and uh, march in the front, stand at attention, salute." Officer Candidate Hammett, <laughs> a reporting in. <laughs> yeah, the guys behind the desk, they were other um, candidates also. And so they, they didn't care. You know, I could have checked in five <laughs> times. Welcome, Officer Candidate Hammett. <laughs> yeah. One of the, the funnier stories on the one of the guys snuck out for some reason and he was tiptoeing around the corner of the building and one of the company officers walked up mm-hmm. and he said, he thought, well, okay, I'm going to hide. And maybe he didn't see me. So he jumps into a dumpster and he's laying flat on top of the trash in the dumpster. <laughs> so he's waiting quietly. And the next thing he knows the, the company officer comes over and lifts the lid on the dumpster and peeks in. He snapped a really sharp salute. He said, Officer <laughs> Candidate Smith <laughs> reporting dumpster all secure, sir. <laughs> the lieutenant was laughing so hard he couldn't report it. 
<laughs> it was just too good. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's a good story. Oh boy, oh boy. So, so it sounds like you had a pretty good time there at Officer Candidate School. We did. Uh, after the first uh, couple of months, they well, we had a break for Christmas. I went home to Louisiana and got my car and and managed to drive back through the snow without killing myself or anybody else. And mm-hmm. We were able to go to the junior officers club on Friday night and buy those cheap pitchers of beer. And we made some excursions out into town and, and, uh, experienced the local sandwich fair and bar fair there in, uh, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Enjoyed that. Uh, just did some weekend ski trips, Wow, which for me was a, New experience skiing involved water and motorboats for me. Mm-hmm. There's uh, just not ever enough snow in Louisiana to work up a ski trip. Sure. Get a sheet of ice and it shuts down traffic for a week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, ice is the, the evil thing yeah, there. Exactly. But we, uh, they shipped us to Athens, Georgia for six months for supply oh, school spring, summer, and fall, uh, it was a little slice of heaven. Oh, I bet. Uh, you had the, uh, that's right there at the University of Georgia, right? Yeah. Oh, they, very, okay. Well, so, on you. <laughs> uh, we, we had private BOQ rooms, and uh, it was acad- academically, it was, it was uh, pretty challenging. Uh, one of oh. my classmates didn't make it through and they, they washed him out. Um, I could have done better, but it ended up paying off for me. Mm -hmm. When the detailer came down to talk about assignments, uh, it turns out no one was going to Vietnam. That was winding down. They were moving people out and not in Mm -hmm. Uh, pretty much everybody in my class was going to a ship, right? Either the, the larger submarines, uh, ballistic missile subs, or destroyers. If you got independent duty, uh, the larger ships, you'd be an assistant supply officer. Mm-hmm. I was looking for something a little different. Sure. So I, I asked the detailer, I said, I understand there's a supply officer slot in Antarctica. And I, <clears throat> I'm really interested in that. Wow. <laughs> and, he smiled. He said, uh, you know, you need to watch out when the detailer smiles. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, that's, um, requires more seniority than you've got. Mm-hmm. And then he said, but I've got something almost as good. I said, okay, what you got? He said, there's a slot on Diego Garcia. I said, uh, Never met this guy, Diego Garcia. What's going on here? <laughs> Is he the most interesting man in the world? <laughs> yeah. He starts telling me about it. Um, at the time, the, the station at Diego Garcia was under construction. Uh, wasn't commissioned yet. And he said, well, it's an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Like really in the middle. And I, I said, Okay. I'm, I'm in, let's go. <laughs> uh, so that's where they sent me. Uh, the footprint of the Indian ocean. 
It really is. The uh, pre-commissioning detail for the communication station, which was my assignment, was in Washington, D.C. So I went to Washington, D.C. for a week of orientation. I got a, quite a few stairs walking around there in uniform because it turns out they don't see ensigns in Washington, D.C. <laughs> we weren't, weren't familiar with that uniform. I thought maybe I had a kick me sign on my back or something, but finally my, my boss explained to me that lieutenants and above is usually what you see in D.C., so I had to salute everybody. But uh, I went on to Diego Garcia, had a, an interesting one-year tour, lived in a plywood hut the whole time, marched across the sand to get to the head, shower, uh, it was, it was very interesting. Wore cutoff uniform, shorts. And now, so so Dave, they were uh, that was a British run like island, right? Did the Brit? Because I've heard that the British, um, you know, contingent there always wears those shorts as well. Is that we just kind of took our? That's lead what we that? did. Uh, the, the CBs were building it, so we wore CB uniforms. Oh, okay fatigues and they cut them off in shorts mm -hmm. and it worked uh, oh, okay it's pretty comfortable uh very hot and humid there mm -hmm. you're right on the equator rain every day pretty much mm -hmm. so you're either wet or sweating or something sure. all the time so you lived in a hut i mean you didn't have didn't have air conditioning so you're no. Just kind of hoping there's trade winds or something to cool it off at night. That's it. We, we had a few fans. I was in a, it was a Southeast Asia hut. Okay. So the thing was plywood sides up four feet and then canvas flaps on the windows above that Okay. screens to keep the bugs out. There were six junior officers in my hut. Mm. We had electric fans going, trying to keep the air moving through there. Sure. It was a real camp out adventure <laughs> for for how for a year, right? For a year, yeah, it was a year. <laughs> Not that anyone got track of it, but it was a year. So there had to be some characters on that island that you know that you oh, the, that you, stories of people are like when well, this guy's legendary on the island or something because because they've done something crazy. There were well, one of the supply officers with the CB battalion actually went went nuts they had to ship him off oh wow uh another guy who also kind of went nuts tried to to swim away oh my god which was not possible oh my goodness <laughs> uh so they fished him out of the water and and sent him home the brit rep uh as we call him the the queen's representative <laughs> was a retired royal navy lieutenant commander who was recalled to active duty for this assignment. He made a, some kind of political deal, got a follow-up appointment in the Seychelles as a, some government official. Which is a beautiful place to be. I understand that. <laughs> John Penner was his name. Uh -huh. And he really was bored because at the time I was there, at first there were no British sailors, mm -hmm. just John. 
Uh, I was not allowed to call him John. It was had to be Commander Kenner. <laughs> but I, it took me the better part of the year to win his friendship. Mm-hmm. He loved to cause trouble for the Americans, just okay. to stir up things. Uh huh. His door had, I think, six titles on it. <laughs> Everything he could think of that from the you know royal postmaster. <laughs> Queen's representative, all, yeah. Oh my goodness. And uh, it was just a really interesting guy. He tried to make the CBs drive on the left side of the road because <laughs> it was a British territory. There was, you know, message traffic back and forth to Washington, D.C. Yeah. Can he do this? You know, <laughs> of course he couldn't. <laughs> He tried to uh, make the CBs surrender all their firearms to him. Oh my goodness! <laughs> he just they weren't fights. He just they weren't going to do it. He wouldn't know what to do with them if he had them. So it did. It was a lot of that that went on. And did you tell him? Did they tell him that? Uh, I'm sorry, our vehicles are all left-hand drive. We can't drive on the wrong side of the road. I don't know how they resolved it, but they they. <laughs> That, that was one of many things like that that he he stirred up. Uh, oh, my goodness. That sounds like an interesting guy. Uh, halfway through my tour, uh, half a dozen British sailors showed up. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were great guys. They didn't have a whole lot to do, but they worked themselves into the station. Mm-hmm. Uh, we commissioned the communications station. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> one day my boss said, they would you like to go see the the comm center? Well, this is a you know classified area. So I only had a confidential security clearance because that's all I needed for what I did. Right. So he had to escort me over there. And he had a pretty dry sense of humor too. So we had to log both of us in the log book. And then under purpose of visit, he wrote spy. <laughs> so not good comp center guys didn't see it right away but when they did they uh, they were a little upset <laughs> oh my goodness gracious what what we didn't know at the time uh-huh. one of the the radio men working in that comp center was a guy named jerry whitworth oh wow yeah Oh, my goodness gracious. You didn't know you had the Walker family spy ring working right there at Diego Garcia. No, I was paying the guy every payday. We oh, had my goodness. Payday, so he was coming through. Oh, my gosh. I keep oh. run, you know, with all these interviews I'm doing, I keep running into the Whitworths and the Walkers through every interview, seems like. Yeah. Somebody has had a run-in, uh, you know, has brushed up against them at one point in their career. It's amazing. So I think it was 1980 late 85 or 86 mm-hmm. i was back in la for my mm-hmm. second tour and one of the ci guys came over and said hey i gotta talk to you uh oh <laughs> you know this guy would work i said doesn't ring a bell no he said, well if you were stationed with him when you were in the navy i said okay <laughs> <laughs> you paid him <laughs> yeah i paid him oops <laughs> Oh my goodness. That uh, is crazy. I asked for, uh, well, they promised me my choice of duty 
as a follow on to the Diego Garcia assignment. Mm -hmm. So I asked for Dallas, Texas, mm -hmm. kind of had to fight a little bit to get it. Uh, well, I also asked for Memphis, Pensacola, someplace sure. close to home, sure. basically. And I got Dallas, Texas. Okay. And I was the assistant supply officer. Now I had met an NIS agent on Diego Garcia when my store was broken into. Okay. I flew a guy out of the Philippines and unfortunately I can't remember his name. It took him three days to get there because he had to go from the Philippines to Thailand and then wait for a flight down and so forth. Mm -hmm. By then I had totally screwed up the crime scene, mm. had recovered the stolen merchandise, but didn't have a suspect. Uh, basically he, he just ask a few questions, work on his tan and then wait for the next plane out of there. <laughs> Not much for him to do there after, that, after you've solved the case. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> but for the most part, uh, the importance of that was that it, it sparked this idea in my mind that this, there really is somebody like this, you know? <laughs> well, and, let, can I stop you right there? Because you told, we were talking on the phone the other day, you were talking about when you're in supply school, that you were told about these mysterious people. Yes. That moved call, about in the, in the department. I call it the boogeyman stories. <laughs> uh, and the, the best one of them was uh, intended to, to intimidate us because they knew we would be handling a lot of cash and we would have a stack of blank treasury checks that we were authorized to sign for almost an un, unlimited amount of money, which we could then take to the bank in cash. They told us if it was going to be more than a million dollars on one check, we had to call the treasury first and let them know so they wouldn't be caught off guard. But we were uh, the, the guys who paid for what the Navy bought, particularly in foreign ports overseas. If the ship pulled in and we needed to buy fuel, we needed to buy supplies, food, whatever, uh, even replacement parts if we could, we wrote the check for it. So <clears throat> the temptation was there for some people to retire early off of one of those checks. So the, the story was about a, a young supply officer who did just that, wrote a really big check, went to the local bank, cashed it, never went back to the ship, vanished, and finds himself one day on some tropical island with no extradition, sitting on the beach in a, in a recliner, uh, drinking a cold little drink with an umbrella in it. And he all of a sudden gets really sleepy and he just drops his drink and falls asleep. And he wakes up with a headache and he's face down on the beach in Miami wondering how the hell he got back into U.S. jurisdiction. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So the implication was 
that somebody's going to get you no matter where you go. Mm -hmm. And we don't know who these people are, but the real funny thing about that, that I only found out fairly recently. And if you talk to Doug Hubbard, he can tell you something about it. Something like that really did happen. Oh my it wasn't a, wasn't a supply officer, uh, but uh, some guy did get brought back from Vietnam against his will and was prosecuted in uh, federal court. And my, uh, my good friend and mentor, Fred Gibbons, had a little something to do with that. But I, it's better that Doug tells you that story. Well, I'll be talking to Doug tomorrow, so I'm excited about uh, asking that question. So this guy, <clears throat> somebody went from Vietnam. He he got a did he get a free trip home or how did that happen? He, did he know he had no idea how he got home? He he knew how he got home. I think he was handcuffed to a tie down in the, the back <laughs> of a C-130. <laughs> oh, got it. <laughs> Uh, anybody here, you're handcuffed face down on a C-130. That's a good story. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I got to a Naval Air Station, Dallas, and I had a, a developing interest in martial arts. It's something I never had exposure to growing up in small town. I found out that uh, the, the local NIS agent, Fred Gibbons, was teaching a martial arts class in the, the base gym. Mm -hmm. So I tracked him down and asked him about it. And I also said, and, and Fred, I'm also interested in this crazy job you've got there. I'm planning to get out of the Navy next year. And uh, sounds like something I might be interested in. So, so we did both. I joined Fred's martial arts class, which, uh, I understand now Fred had taught martial arts everywhere he went and, and his tour with NIS with ONI before that. He never charged for a lesson, but he always reserved the right to tell you to leave his class and not come back if he wanted to. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now the class uh, consisted usually of about an hour of calisthenics followed by about another hour of actual martial arts training. Okay. A lot of people left on their own. <laughs> Wait, they didn't get to the calisthenics part, did they? The class was never crowded. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh, my, uh, my very first class with Fred gave me a really good snapshot of who Fred was. And mm -hmm. I, will never forget it because the class he also taught in the basement of his church off base. Okay. And that was the next class coming up. So that's the one I went to first. Okay. And there were two other students there and me and then Fred. And as the class got started, the pastor walked by and looked in the room. He said, Fred, I see you've got three students tonight. Fred stopped, looked real seriously at him. He said, no, there are four students here. <laughs> that, that was Fred's humility. 
That's always, awesome. always a student. I, I never knew him to stop learning new things, new techniques, new styles. The guy was incredible. Yeah. That's um, great stuff. So, so, um, I, and we'll get into this, but did you, uh, after you got hired, did you uh, talk to Fred regularly or did you see him in, after that? I kept touch with Fred through my whole career. Okay. Uh, Fred passed away in 2005. Oh. And I was asked by his family to, to speak at his funeral service. Mm-hmm. I had already started collecting stories from other agents who'd worked with Fred. So I gathered those together and it's, uh, I discovered it's enough for a whole, I'm trying to write a book and it's a whole chapter. Oh, wow. So I used the highlights of those stories at, at Fred's mm-hmm. funeral service so that uh, people in his church and even his other students would know something about Fred's career and about what a legend he was. But Fred helped me apply. Uh, I got a phone call telling me that I, I had a job. It was in Long Beach, California, and I had to be there on the 3rd of March in 1975. Mm -hmm. And I said, Oh, I have to have an on-site relief here to take over the, the money that I'm accountable for. Let me call my relief and make sure he's going to be here in time for me to get to California. On <laughs> so that you're day. still in the Navy right now. I'm still in the Navy. Yeah. Okay. So turned out the window was a little too tight. I had to beg for an extension to start on the 6th of March of 1975. Cause <laughs> one, one day. Uh, so I started on a, I think a Wednesday instead of a Monday. Uh-huh. Um, I also, I'm a country boy from Louisiana. I never heard of Long Beach, California. <laughs> I had to go get a, a map out and found out it was Los Angeles essentially. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But in those days, Long Beach was a pretty big base. You had a couple of battleships there. It was. The, uh, there was a complex there, mm-hmm. base, the support activity, mm-hmm. and also the naval shipyard, which right. had between seven and 8,000 employees. Mm-hmm. So it was a very active base. Uh, a lot of ships coming in for repair and out. Uh, and a lot of cases. Right. But it was also an expensive area to live in, and not a lot of people wanted to go there. Sure. Unless they happened to be from there. Mm-hmm. So it was an office filled with junior agents. Of course. Seniority there was in months. Wow. So, you know, so and so started three or six months ahead of me. So I'll go ask him <laughs> so what to do. Was, were, uh, did you, uh, was a lot of roommates? Uh, I, I know how it was for me in California, my first door. I couldn't, I could barely afford to pay rent. If I didn't, ha- if I didn't have roommates, I wouldn't have gotten through that time. Well, uh, I did not have a roommate at that time. I uh, found an apartment okay. for 200 bucks a month. Wow. Okay. 
which was still pretty expensive at the time. It was twice what I was paying in Dallas. Yeah, sure. So and my <laughs> car insurance doubled. Oh, and, it, my goodness. and then I found out I'd never ask anybody how much this job paid. <laughs> I got the first check and I'd taken a pay cut. <laughs> oh, you started as a GS7 back in the day? Started as a seven. Uh-huh. And I just uh, pinched pennies. I had a bed, thank God, to sleep yep. on. Yep. Uh, a few dishes for the kitchen. I had no no sofa. I had some cushions I threw on the floor and sat on until I could save <laughs> enough money to buy a sofa. <laughs> did you did you go to the officers club for the free meal on like Wednesday night? And as long as you buy two two drinks, I spent a good bit of time in the officers club. Uh, <laughs> that free lumpia and uh, you know food from the the Philippines and things like that. Uh, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The the uh, Happy hour there was uh, very popular with the office. Uh-huh. Matt Hudgens was the sack and Phil Curley was the ASAC. Okay. Those two were, were quite a combination. You know, mm-hmm. they both had a lot of experience. They were, mm-hmm. they were great. I think if, if Matt had come in one day and said, guys, we're going to invade China today. So uh, get ready. We would have been loading up our stuff. You know, he was that kind of leader that we, we would have done that for. Those are the good ones. But if things were going slow on Friday, we might show up at happy hour a little early, two blocks away at the officer's club. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a rivalry going on between Phil and Matt, who had known each other for years, apparently. They're both Southerners. And they both uh, fancied themselves experts at racquetball. (laughs) The racquetball court was halfway between the office and the officer's club. Yeah, sure. So after a little while at happy hour, Phil would often get the idea that he could beat Matt at racquetball now because Matt had had a drink or two and might not be uh, quite as good as, but it never worked. <laughs> never. So we were watching. <laughs> Matt was just unstoppable. Poor Phil never, never was able to do that, but he never gave up hope. Even under the influence of alcohol, he couldn't, yeah. couldn't beat him. <laughs> Maybe the alcohol had something to do with the hope. I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. my goodness. That's great. It was a busy office, mm-hmm. a lot of drug cases, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of thefts because of the shipyard. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the drug of choice in 1975? Well, it was marijuana, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, interestingly, I started reluctantly doing undercover buys there mm-hmm. because we couldn't find anybody else to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a case come up with a, a cooperating witness who didn't want to testify, didn't want to be anywhere near the courtroom. So we went shopping for an undercover agent. DEA didn't want to mess with us because it wasn't big enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, turned out our suspect had already burned all the Long Beach police narcotics detectives. Mm-hmm. He sat in their lobby until he saw each one of them come and go from work until he oh, knew who wow. they were. Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> he had staked out our office from the second floor of the BEQ across the street. Wow. And so, you know, I finally agreed 
to do the buy, I dressed up pretending to be a shipyard worker, got mm -hmm. a phony ID made and uh, a hard hat and some funky clothes I got at the uh, local Goodwill mm -hmm. and went over there just nervous as I could be mm -hmm. and walked up and bought heroin from this guy. Oh, sweet. I'd never seen heroin. Yeah. Yeah. When I went to basic school, they didn't even have any heroin for us to, to <laughs> sample the test with. Yeah, sure. So I find out after that first buy, the, uh, the suspect said to the source, he says, uh, that guy looked like one of those agents that we saw when we were surveilling the NIS office. And the source was pretty sharp. He, yeah. he, was, he said, you know, you're right, it does, but it's not the same guy. <laughs> That's all he had to say. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we wanted to get a second buy into this guy, and he's kind of putting us off, and we really didn't know why. We had a hello phone in the office mm -hmm. that was not listed, and everybody knew if you answered, you just said hello. Mm -hmm. So I called the, the suspect up and I said, his street name was Smokey. I said, Smokey. <clears throat> said, uh, yeah, I still want to get something from you, but I'm leaving on Christmas vacation in a couple of days. So if you come up with something that you want to sell me, here's my number at work, shop 58 in the shipyard and, you know, just ask for me. Mm -hmm. And if not, I'm, I'm gone. See you after Christmas. Right. So it wasn't a day or two for the, the hello phone rings. And I put a little sticky note on it saying, if this phone rings, answer shop 58. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, I was using an undercover name, Dave black, you know, take a message for Dave black or call mm -hmm. me. So Chuck Keller answered the phone. <laughs> and he the shop 58 and then the next thing i hear him say hey dave dave black there's a guy named Smokey on the phone for you there <laughs> there at the office yeah sure so i got on and we we set up a meeting he's got some cocaine this time he wants to sell uh-huh so we, we meet the same place two blocks from the office. I just changed clothes real quick. Walked over there, Chuck set up surveillance camera. The other guys were around. We had to, the by bus signal was going to be the old cigarette pack that we had in, in the tech gear, where if you pull the cigarette out, it sends a beep signal over the radio. Oh, okay. <clears throat> that, that's going uh, back some years right there. That's, that's back. <laughs> this is old stuff. Yeah, so we, we couldn't use a wire. That was forbidden at the times. So uh -huh. we had the signal. And then we had as a backup signal, I'd take my hard hat off mm -hmm. because the cigarette pack was about 30% reliable. Maybe. <laughs> on, on a good day. <laughs> I make the deal, I give, give him the money. Uh, it was around, I think, around $300 for a quarter ounce of cocaine, which would be a bargain now. But yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, 
but that's more money than we can let go. We've got to get that back. <laughs> oh yeah. Those were the days right there. You know, I, was, I was a seven. I didn't want to, you know, end up not making it to nine. <laughs> so I pulled the cigarette out of the cigarette pack and I'm holding it and looking around. Nobody's coming. Mm-hmm. Smokey's headed for his, his, uh, Cadillac. He's heading <laughs> out and, and then I take my hat off. I saw that. <laughs> it turned out the cigarette pack didn't work at all. Oh my goodness. Everybody showed up. We, uh, we arrested Smokey. Chuck filmed the whole thing with the eight millimeter camera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we took, that was my uh, first court martial case first right. time ever testifying in court so the day of the rest did uh, did Smokey know did he learn that you were uh, an agent undercover he knew because you know we took him to the office and oh, okay read yeah, his rights and he didn't want to talk to us of course so we, this is the first court martial now yeah so I'm in court at the uh, defense attorney's giving me a, a real going over on every little detail trying to pick it apart mm-hmm and there was an armrest on the left side of the witness stand that uh-huh. was covered in formica. And I didn't know until after my three hours on the witness stand that I had not moved my arm, my hand, or any finger during that time. And when I stood up, <laughs> my whole hand and all the fingers were outlined in sweat. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Oh, that's funny. That is funny. <laughs> uh, it was kind of the day of light sentences back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Navy had this idea that if they gave somebody a dishonorable discharge, that was such a heavy penalty that mm-hmm. how much time they did in jail didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. So they gave old Smokey a year in jail mm-hmm. and a dishonorable discharge. Mm-hmm. And sometime during his year, early in his year, the Admiral down in San Diego decided that was too much time. So reduced his sentence to six months, let him out, you know, discharge him, of course. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon we're hearing tales of Smokey out in town in Long Beach selling drugs on the street. <laughs> well, my goodness. Ah, just a... Just another uh, another day in the life of a of a, yep. of a narcotics uh, agent. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm right out of basic school. Sure. I, ended, I think I ended up doing 13 undercover drug buys while I was there, and one undercover buy of stolen property. Well, you had a fantastic first year. You were nominated for the Director's Cup, which was for the audience purposes. That was for the top agent in his first year of uh, of duty with NIS, right? Yeah, I got the nomination for the. What then was the 11th Naval District, all of Southern California. Mm-hmm. I didn't get the award, and I was glad later because I, I heard later it came with a sort of a curse. Oh, yeah. That uh, everybody that seemed to have gotten it in the last few years that ended up the subject of a, a 2B, an internal affairs <laughs> investigation, something or other. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, that's a good thing you didn't get the award. So that's, so I, uh, that's interesting. Felt, yeah, my career was a little bit safer for not having gotten that, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. 
Oh my goodness. So um, I also had a the first week after basic school, I had a, a duty call on Friday night. I'd been asleep for 30 minutes mm-hmm. and I get a duty duty call. There's been a rape on the base. Mm. So I splash some water in my face and head back to the office and call a sack who at that time was Bob David, who was fairly new there. Mm-hmm. And he met me at the office and we interviewed the victim suspect was in custody. He didn't want to talk to us. Um, we worked the, the case. It ended up being uh, a defense of consensual sex. The victim was incredible. We, we worked until nine the next morning, then worked it the next week. You know, I can't say enough about how great the victim was. She made a good witness in court. Yeah. It just uh, worked out really good. And, and the surprising thing was that we had two other victims of the same suspect two days before and then two days before that that mm-hmm. had not come forward that when they found out about this victim coming forward, mm-hmm. they came forward. So we went to court with three victims. Wow. Sexual assault, one suspect. And um, sent that guy to prison for i think seven years which was that's pretty significant back in those days that was quite a bit what what was his just his rate and rank was he a petty officer he was a fireman oh okay he wasn't even a petty officer rank yet he was fireman then wow and each of his assaults was a little more violent than the other so Mm -hmm. he was a uh you know, a, a serial killer potentially. Yeah, sure. Um, he liked to choke the women. Interesting. But it sounds like, you know, I had a case down in San Diego with a, uh, it was actually San Diego police. I was on the Kitty Hawk at the time. And one of our sailors was um, arrested for a serial offender. He, he had started assaulting women at Great Lakes then in Jacksonville, he got transferred to the Kitty Hawk and he had um, killed like three prostitutes in San Diego. And uh, yeah, he was a he was a uh, aviation ordinance guy on board the ship. So when you're thinking about this guy that you're looking at right now is assaulted, you know, these three women. That's exactly his progression. He at Great Lakes. Um, but there was a, a an incident in Jacksonville. And he was there. Um the prostitute that he was sexually assaulting, she stabbed him in the arm. And after that, he started killing women. So um, it's interesting, the progression. So you got to them before he started his violent actions. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, he was headed that way. And I think it would have happened, but uh, luckily we had a brave victim who came forward and it really does. It takes, it takes a brave victim like that to, uh, to, to make a case, to help you make the case. And, and it uh, is. This, that's, this that's the key. Was, um, she was married. She was at the enlisted club. Her husband was deployed. She was there mm-hmm. w- with her mother. Mm-hmm. And this guy talked her into stepping outside the club and assaulted her on the side of the building there. Wow. Wow. So, there, you know, 
she could have had some victim guilt there, but she didn't. She came forward. She sat there with us, explained exactly what happened, and and stood by the story. She was, you know, dead on. She identified the guy. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was great. Couldn't ask any more of somebody that had been traumatized like that. Sure. Good stuff. So, um, how, so how long did you spend at uh, Long Beach? Uh, what was your uh, length of tour there? I was there just short of three and a half years. Okay. We were all, <clears throat> all of us were pretty much rota- rotating out in the summer mm-hmm. of, after our third anniversary there. Mm-hmm. And so in, in our local seniority system, we knew when we were leaving. Because <laughs> this was back in the days where you didn't you didn't bid for positions. All of a sudden, that teletype would come on, and names would start spitting out names where and where you're going. Is that right? Well, it's, it was something like that. I I think I put um, three preferences in, mm-hmm. and I got number three uh, on my list, which was. Japan, just generically Japan. I didn't. So let me stop you right there. So I, uh, did you put like the two ones you wanted were one and two, and it was always the third one you got. Yeah, I think the, <laughs> I think so. I put the, the Philippines and uh, something else, maybe Hawaii, which I, uh-huh. you know, I, later I wouldn't do, but uh, I didn't know anything at the time. And, and then I put Japan and I got Japan, so nice. And you went to Yokosuka, right? Went to Yokosuka. Yeah. Uh, and the the deal at that time, maybe still now, if you go to Yokosuka, you're you'll be doing an afloat tour on the carrier that's home ported there. Sure. So, so I think my, they still do that there. I think they still have that. The uh, people that typically do the carrier in Yokosuka um, are agents who are assigned to the office. Yeah. So that. It worked out good. Uh, Bob did, um, Bob Powers, mm-hmm. the sack when I got there, couldn't ask for a, a better guy to work for. Now, Bob Powers, is that the same guy that became the deputy director uh, yeah. in the 90s? Wow. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, we would bump into each other uh, several times after that. Mm-hmm. Both of them interesting. <laughs> uh, Jack Gadelia oh. was the the regional director oh, and wow. we were co-located. So he was down the hall. It was an <laughs> L-shaped pre-World War II Japanese building. And uh-huh. we were at one end and they were at the other. We all used the same restroom and coffee pot, which caused uh, Bob Powers a, a lot of stress. <laughs> Why is that? Well, they were in his business a lot more than they were Oh, sure. The guy in Okinawa, his counterpart in Okinawa, who, uh-huh. was, who they didn't bump into, you know, several times a day. <laughs> and never want to be close to headquarters, but he was. Yeah, Bob Bob had a little sign on the on his office wall said, a, a co-located Nisra is evil. <laughs> I think he passed it on to his replacement. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's great. That's great. So, uh, what was the what? What did they sign to uh, sign? What duties were you assigned when you showed up at Yokosuka? It was uh, general crimes. Okay. Uh, we all we all also were expected to do a little CICE work. Okay. This was 
before the days of specialization. Sure. So I ended up being the uh, second agent on several ops and then eventually inherited those myself. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a lot mm -hmm. of general crime stuff, assaults, thefts, working with the Japanese police yeah. uh, who were a hoot. Um, we, uh, we had a, a lot of good times with those guys. And oh, I, I imagine. Learned a lot about how they work differently than we do. Mm -hmm. We had a, a kind of a habit of just winging it. We, we knew what we needed to do. We knew the uh -huh. parameters and what we could and couldn't do. Yep. And so we could develop a plan on the fly. Mm -hmm. They did not do that. <laughs> <laughs> that was not their thing. <laughs> So, so, so how would the Japanese operate? What was their plan of action? We were kind of like fly by the seat of our pants and they were. Yeah. We, we would say, let's go, let's do this drug buy. Yeah. And they would, they would have, you know, be meeting with us. And I, they said, no, we need to go back to our police station and have a discussion about it. And then we'll come back and meet with you again. Okay. And <laughs> so they would go back and they would mull it over and, come up with a, a plan that everyone agreed on uh -huh. because if it was just one person's plan and everybody else was going along mm -hmm. and it failed or something went terribly wrong with it, mm -hmm. then that person was perhaps literally going to fall on their sword. Oh my goodness. Um, wow. Not, not literally, but they didn't want to lose face. They didn't want yeah, to. Exactly. Uh, if, if they spread it, a mistake out over the group it wasn't so bad mm -hmm. and that was hardwired into them so they would go back and they then they'd come back meet with us and they'd see okay you know maybe your plan sounds good or let's do it this way or that way or whatever mm -hmm. and, uh, that's it, interesting it worked out really good uh, so so uh david um Working with foreign law enforcement is one of the unique things that NIS agents, NCIS, ONI, whatever, get to do. And would you say that was one of the uh, one of the best things about your job uh, when you were an agent? I think definitely it was. Mm -hmm. There were times when it was also the most frustrating thing. Sure, but it it's the nature the nature of NIS and NCIS is that. A lot of the time we're working in somebody else's backyard. Sure. We need the cooperation and assistance of those people. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, a, a story I'll get to later uh, happened in Oklahoma. There ended up being five agencies working on arresting a, a murder suspect. <laughs> so it was, um, it was really interesting because the jurisdictions were so spotty and overlapping and so forth. But mm -hmm. in, uh, in a place like Japan, it, it was good. And we got to know these guys. We played softball with them. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew that, uh, you know, we could, we could beat the detectives, but if they brought in the patrol guys, we were in trouble. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, we we really um, really had a, a lot of fun working with That's those good. guys. I had an interesting uh, incident with one of them in the office. Uh, there was a uh, Sergeant Ono, mm -hmm. 
who was one of the detectives there, who was, uh, they all had done martial arts at some time. So you can't grow up in Japan, I think, without some exposure. But he stayed with it, and he was a, a, a master of Iaido, which is the art of quick drawing and cutting in one stroke with the samurai sword. Oh my goodness. He was good enough with it that other police stations would pay him to come do a demonstration. So I was reading all these Japanese history books and classics, the English translation of them and trying to understand them. And some of them just weren't clear to the, the foreigner. That's kind of, <laughs> that's so, interesting. So one of the books that I, that I still find fascinating is uh, the, is the book of five rings, which was written by the guy who's acknowledged as the, the greatest swordsman in the history of Japan. And he supposedly killed more than 70 men in, in duels with the sword back in the 1600s. So one of the chapters is uh, the body strike. And in the chapter, he says, if your sword is entangled with your opponents, striking with your body. Well, that's uh, in principle, I kind of understand that, but the devil's in the details there. So I, through our interpreter, I'm asking Sergeant Ono about this. I said, uh -huh. you know, I've been reading this and I'd really like to understand what he means. Mm -hmm. And he got quiet and then he says something back to the interpreter and the interpreter turns to me and he says, it's hard to explain, but he can show you. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew I was in for a lesson then. Yeah. So I said, okay. So he pulls two pencils out of the pencil holder on the desk mm -hmm. and has me hold one in, in two hands. And then he holds one in two hands out mm -hmm. in front of him and <laughs> puts his pencil against mine. And we're in a small office there, probably eight feet wide at the most. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he, in a flash, he lifts my pencil up in the air till it above my head and <laughs> turns and throws the point of his shoulder into the middle of my chest oh, and my bounces me into the wall on the side of the room. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and so you learned. <laughs> so I learned and I pull myself back together and said. Thank you. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> My little Japanese uh, domo. Domo. <laughs> domo arigato. <laughs> oh, that is so great. Uh, but what a great bunch of guys to work with. I mean, I, I, I must say they must, they must have been really good guys to work with. They really are. They were all professional. They, uh, they had, uh, a very high confession rate. Mm -hmm. uh, they really uh, worked hard. Mm -hmm. If we asked them for help on something, they would be glad to give it to us. And if they ask us in turn for help on it, yeah, uh, we would help them also. Sure. And so, uh, did, was he, there, a, so David, when, uh, did you ever do a joint? interrogation with them not usually okay uh 
we could get, if they had uh, an American in Japanese jail, we could ask permission and we can go down and talk to them. Mm -hmm. um, when we did so, we would usually take some M&Ms or a candy bar or something. Because they haven't eaten, right? They had eaten something they didn't necessarily enjoy for the last three days. And, uh -huh. and uh, they were really happy to see us. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So I, I uh, suppose that when you're locked up in Japanese jail mm -hmm. and you're eating less than uh, restaurant quality Japanese food and no one's speaking English to you, mm -hmm. a friendly face, even us. <laughs> Glad to see anybody that's American. So we, we could often get a, an awful lot of information, but mm -hmm. the Japanese could, if they arrested some an American off base, mm -hmm. they could hold them for, I think, three days mm -hmm. before they indicted them. And usually in that three days, they, they had a confession. The, if, uh, if the suspect was on base, mm -hmm. they had to actually go to a judge and get an arrest warrant before they could ask for that person to be turned over to them. Interesting. That, that um, led to an interesting dance that we did with them. Um, the sailors knew that if they went off base, mm -hmm. they were, if they were wanted by the Japanese police and they went off base, they were likely to get arrested. Yeah. So most of them stayed on base, but not all of them could resist some temptation. So, if we would get some Japanese bar girl who spoke English to call a sailor and convince him that it was true love and that she was counting the minutes until she could see him again, he might just walk out the front gate of the base and head for the bar district. And if the Japanese police happened to be waiting there for him, then he was headed to jail and the uh, bar girl would go back to work with uh, perhaps a little tip. So when they would do their interviews and interrogations, um, if, if you will, um, was there any, did they, did they have a, a process of reading rights uh, to the individual or did they just start questioning them? You know, I'm not really sure about that. Interesting. Uh, I suspect that they did, but I never understood exactly what it was. I just yeah. knew that they could bring someone in and hold them for three days right? With, without uh, formal charges. Interesting. Now, so you had, so you've got drugs, you're doing sexual assaults. You had, you had death cases there as well. I mean, uh, we, had, we had several death cases while I was there. Um, one sailor floated up. It's one of those you can't forget mm -hmm. after being on the, the bottom of the harbor under the pier for 30 days. The water was cold, so the decomposition rate was slower. So, and <clears throat> he was in pretty gnarly shape when he floated up. Imagine. Sea life was feasting on him and he was bloated and smelled really, really bad. Uh, mm -hmm. His clothes, the threads in his clothing were starting to rot from the water. 
uh, we had to backtrack because he was missing that time, but there was nothing that had caused our involvement in it until someone looks down from one of the ships and sees a, a guy floating there. Mm-hmm. So we went back, uh, interviewed his shipmates, and it, it took a little while, but it turns out his ship was moored outside of another ship alongside that pier where he was subsequently found. Mm-hmm. The top of his skull was was caved in. Um, mm. The autopsy showed. We found a couple of his shipmates who had been out drinking with him on the last night that he was seen. Mm-hmm. And they reluctantly admitted to us that on the cab ride back to the pier, they had concocted a plan to stiff the cabbie for the cab fare. Mm. The plan was that they would all open their doors at the same time and run and head for the end of the pier and the, the, uh, and the ship. Well, they, they had been drinking and some of them got cold feet. So they stayed and paid the cabbie. This guy was the first out the door and he ran on down the pier into the darkness and they never saw him again. Oh, wow. What we, put together looking at the area and the pier was that he tripped, went over the side of the pier, head first onto the floating log, probably three feet in diameter that was chained to the pier as a bumper or fender against the ship that was tied up there. And he hit that head first, and that was it just slipped off into the water and no one knew what no one saw it no one knew what happened uh, that that was the, the best scenario that we could come up with mm-hmm. or so you know no foul play other than on his own part uh, mm-hmm. and all for uh for a few bucks for cab there unbelievable that's it's it didn't always seems like that's how it is it yeah it seems like that's how it is doesn't it well, wow. one of my best career cases, actually, I, I remembered uh, was the winter before I went afloat, mm-hmm. I think February of 79. And <clears throat> Bob Powers always had a Monday morning agents meeting, eight o'clock, you know, bring your coffee, sit in the conference room and tell each other what you're working on. And he would tell us, you know, anything he had had to say and this particular morning the meeting started and Jack Adelia comes and opens the door of the conference room which never happened before and he's got a single piece of paper in his hand which turned out to be a naval message he calls Bob out <clears throat> talks to him in the hallway Bob steps steps back in points at me says Dave you're going to Korea there's been a murder go home, pack a suitcase and get your crime scene gear. So I go home and I get my biggest clamshell suitcase, fill half of it with clothing, and come back to the office, fill the other half with crime scene kit, <clears throat> camera, film. And Bob says, you, you can take your weapon with you if you want, because we've got you a, 
a flight on a Navy plane, but you might have trouble coming back with it because we don't know how you're coming back. So I, I said, no. <laughs> all right, I guess I'll go without it then. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. So I take a three hour bus ride to uh, Naval Air Station at Sugi. And I go, there's a, a Navy Learjet waiting there and they're holding it for me. Oh, wow. Which I, well, I'm a big shot now, you know, and uh, <laughs> there's some sailor who thinks he's going on R and R in Korea space a, and they pull him off the plane, put me on and <laughs> there we go. Oh, wow. And we land at a airfield near Pusan. Okay. Um, there's an army CID agent waiting there for me. Mm -hmm. He pulls me out of the, the line for immigration, which ended up causing me trouble, but uh -oh. so he pulls me out and said, come with me. So I get in his car and he, he's, it's late afternoon by this time. Cause this whole thing had started at eight, you know, eight 30 in the morning, which noon before I leave on the bus for Atsugi. So it's February in Korea. It is now the coldest place, colder than Rhode Island. It's overcast, snow flurries. He said the wind's blowing 40 knots. Says the, the army's grounded all helicopters. The ship's out at sea. We don't know how we're going to get you out there, but he says, let's go to the club. We'll get you something to eat. Find your place to sleep, and tomorrow morning we'll try to figure it out. Yeah. I said, okay. So we pull into the Army Officers Club parking lot. Out of the clouds, the low clouds, comes a Navy helicopter and it lands on the Officers Club lawn. <laughs> and the rescue diver in a wetsuit jumps out. So I run over there and he says, Are you Watson? I said, Yeah. He says, well, we're here to get you. Says, okay, let me go get my bag. So <laughs> run back to the car, grab the bag, yeah. you know, climb in the helicopter, and we take off. And I see the <clears throat> Army CID agent stand there with his mouth still open on the lawn <laughs> of the Oak Club, wondering what just happened. <laughs> uh, oh, something tells me this immigration thing's about to come back. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We land on the ship and, and Bob Powers had told me, uh, he said, if you get up there and you seems like you need some help, send a message back. Mm -hmm. Well, I got up there and there's a guy, a Marine missing from, they're doing this annual exercise they do in Korea right. where U S and Korean forces work together. The ship's, I can land on the ship just before dark. They're all in darkened ship condition, so there's no light. Mm -hmm. So I go in and I find out there's there's a Marine missing, presumed dead, probably thrown over the side after a, a serious beating. They have three possible suspects in custody, two of whom were found with blood all over their uniforms and their towels trying to clean up. Mm -hmm. 
and they're in the brig on another ship. And I've got an outdoor crime scene on the deck with blood all over it. And they've put plastic sheets over it to try to protect it from the sea spray. So I said, oh my God. Goodness. So I immediately sent a message back to Bob Powers, said, send me another agent. <laughs> so 24 hours later, my other agent shows up. It's Daryl Toller. Oh, wow. Daryl Toller. That's a name from the past. And Daryl had just finished graduating from the, the one as one of the first graduates of the master's in forensics programs. Oh, okay. So I'm still an 11. Daryl's a 12, you know, which I'm looking up. He says, <laughs> he says, tell me what to do. This is your case. I said, okay. I said, I've got a bunch of evidence the master at arms seized, and I'm pretty sure it's all packaged wrong. So would you go look at that stuff? And because, you know, it's bloody and it's wet and help me with that. And then we'll tag team these interviews because we're going to interview everybody on the ship before this is over. Mm -hmm. All the Marines, there was a Marine uh, engineering unit on the ship. That's where the, the suspects and the victim came from and figure this whole thing out. So Daryl did that. In the meantime, the next morning I had gotten a chief master at arms and the ship's doctor. And we were the crime scene team. We pulled all the plastic off. We walked the deck and <clears throat> recovered blood samples. One of which luckily had a, a small hair in it. Mm. We, um, did the best we could to photograph and document all this found a full palm print in blood on the rail on the side of the ship. Wow. And photographed that... it. I still have that one in my collection. That's, that's a good, that's a good co uh, collector's item right there for sure. Cause I, I, uh, foiled the file on the case and they wouldn't give me any of the photos or the, um, crime scene stuff. Mm. This was in the days before DNA. DNA was science fiction at that time. Yeah, sure. Witchcraft. Yeah. Um, so we had blood type. Um, and the blood matched the victim's type. The uh, victim was of African ancestry. And the tiny little hair we found was from someone of African ancestry. Mm -hmm. The uh, suspects... Two of them were, that were locked up had already been advised of their rights by the, the Marines and had requested lawyers. Well, all three of them had. One of them, turns out, was, was not really involved. Mm -hmm. So Daryl and I waded through the interviews. We put all the evidence together, the crime scene stuff, and, and um, the history of these guys. And we found out there were two other guys who were involved in it who hadn't been identified. We figured out who those guys were. Right. We <clears throat> picked out the weak link in the butt, the gang of four, and suggested to his defense attorney that his client might benefit by making a deal and rolling over on the others, mm -hmm. which he did. 
So we got uh, four Marines convicted. You know, we got the whole story of the thing and uh, court martial was held down in uh, Okinawa. So we, we solved the case, sent four Marines to prison. And, uh, so let me ask you this, as far as, as far as that case goes, when you sat down at the interrogation with the suspect, um, you know, certainly there's always a denial at the beginning of these kind of cases. What, how did you, what was your theme that you were able to get him to talk about the case? Uh, the, well, <clears throat> well, we weren't really because they all had attorneys assigned. Oh, wow. Okay. By the time we got, by the time I got there, they had attorneys assigned. Interesting. So my message. So we talked, <laughs> <laughs> we talked to the attorney when we decided which, which guy uh, we could break loose from the others. Mm-hmm. We went to his attorney and only his attorney and said, you know, we know we can prove your guy was involved in this. Yeah. He's got blood on his uniform, his yep. blood on his towel with his name stenciled on it. He's got no alibi. But we know these other people were involved. Mm-hmm. He'd help himself by uh, being honest uh, with us, right? Yeah. And he did. And wow. he did. So, uh, so that worked. We uh, were able to have medical experts tell us that after a complete search of the ship, to verify that our victim was not on the ship mm-hmm. anywhere in any condition at all, and the circumstances on the deck, the, the weather in Korea and the temperature of the water, the fact that he was never recovered that he could not have survived even healthy more than 20 minutes in that cold water. Sure. So they were able to declare him dead. And on that basis, we were uh, able to proceed. Wow. What a great case. And that, that was before the, uh, the case that you probably heard about where someone was declared dead by the volume of blood that, that was found. Mm-hmm. I wow. can't remember what year that was, but it was several years later. So when Toller uh, looked at all the packaging that had been done, uh, what was his comments when he, when he came back and said, oh, did he say, oh, we got problems? Or did he say, hey, we can, we can fix this? Well, he said, we, we got problems and we can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl's that kind of guy. He was the kind of guy that was a can-do guy, for sure. He was. And he said, uh, he said David, you're going to tell your grandchildren about this story. <laughs> he was right. and, and in fact he uh, after he retired he spoke to quite a few graduating agent classes there at Fletzy and told them this story at their graduation oh wow you, you know we after Daryl passed we uh, we named the, the Daryl Toller Memorial Award after the, to the to the best agent in class yeah that's um, awesome yeah so he I don't know if they still give that out down there, but I know that when I was down there as instructor, that was uh, something that it was given through NISA, uh, where NISA was going to sponsor it, NCISA, um, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if they ever sponsored, but Matt Butler, when he was the director down there of training, uh, won an award named after Daryl Toller uh, for the best agent in class. And uh, so it was, it was a, a great experience having Daryl's family there on the first time after he had passed um, for yeah. the award presentation. 
Well, we were on that ship for five days off the coast of Korea. And, and it took me a couple of days after that to get my land legs back. But <laughs> I flew off in a helicopter with this huge thing, my big bag and this huge thing of evidence. Mm-hmm. And they dropped me at some base in Korea. I don't, I didn't even know where I was. Oh, wow. And I found some army guy with, with a Jeep. I said, can you give me a ride to Osan Air Base? He <laughs> says, yeah, hop in. I put all my stuff in the back of this Jeep. And down the road we go to Osan. And I caught a plane flight back to Japan and managed to get back to Yokosuka late Saturday afternoon. And I went in the office, to check all this evidence in. And Bob Powers was in, in the office. He was never in the office on the weekend. He would stay late at night. But mm-hmm. This is the only time I ever saw him there on the weekend. Uh-huh. I said, well, Bob, I think, you know, we got some cleanup to do, but I think we solved the case. He said, awesome. He said, uh, Jack Day is a little upset that you didn't send status messages back every day. <laughs> well, I was busy. He said, he said, well, don't worry about it. He'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. They were worried about you. They were worried about you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So, uh, you're there, you've done, um, you, you have drugs, thefts, you had assaults, deaths, sexual assaults. You're doing CIC stuff. At what point did you decide to, uh, um, volunteer to go on the USS Midway? Well, uh, it wasn't really a volunteer. It was, you know, on, uh, <clears throat> on this date, uh, Dave Muggleworth coming off the ship and you're going on. So do whatever you need to do to get your affairs in order. Okay. So I, I left somebody with enough money to pay my, my rent on my little Japanese house and for three months, it was going to be a three month cruise, uh-huh. parked my car in the driveway and caught a ride to the base. And, and, uh, after a late night, uh, office party at the Oak Club, I managed to get on board the ship the night before we set sail. And the next morning I woke up, we were at sea in the middle of a typhoon. <laughs> and as hard as I looked at that breakfast I wanted to eat, I couldn't eat it. <laughs> it looked so good to me and <laughs> I couldn't eat it. <laughs> so the, the Midway was known to be a little top heavy because they put the angled deck on there and things. Do you remember the stories about that? And can you yeah, talk they, about it a little bit? Uh, the Midway started life, uh, I think in 43, mm-hmm. when the keel was laid to be a battleship. Oh, wow. But the Navy had decided that they were going to win the war with aircraft carriers, not battleships. Mm-hmm. And so they converted the midway mid building into a battleship. I mean, into a aircraft carrier, but it was a world war II style aircraft carrier with a straight deck, no angle deck at all, just two catapults on the front mm-hmm. and uh, straight landing in the back somewhere over the years, the uh, angle deck carrier thing came along and someone decided they could modify the midway to be a um, angle deck carrier. So they added the angle deck and on the port side and 
it had a lot of weight there. So the, the for from then on, the Midway had a seven degree list to the port side. So if you'd gone on the Midway with the hopes of playing marbles, you were out of luck because they were all going that way. <laughs> along with just about anything else that rolled or had wheels on it. Yeah. Uh, you know, first thing you did with your office chair is take the wheels off or, or get some rope and tie it to the desk. <laughs> now, where were your office spaces located on the midway? Uh, uh, office spaces there? were after the wardroom. Originally, the one I inherited from uh, Muggleworth uh, was a, literally a closet mm -hmm. and it was right next to um, enlisted men's head which, so i had the sound effects of flushing toilets and running showers and and uh, all of the the stuff that goes on there mm -hmm. thin uh steel walls mm -hmm. with uh, 40 years of paint on them and uh ventilation system that really didn't work very well and a uh, Mugs left me with an old mechanic, uh, manual typewriter. I had had no admin support, no backup agent. Sure. As, as they would have. Me and a click clack uh, manual typewriter. Mm -hmm. And just around the corner were the mastered arms, uh, the mastered arms investigators, and then the, mm -hmm. the, their headquarters and a little desk there for the patrol section. Um, for those who haven't experienced it, uh, an aircraft carrier is a floating city. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the master arms are the, are the uniform section of the police department and they have foot patrols to man because there's no communication. Once you get out of earshot, you're it. And, and uh, those guys were, they were my friends. They were my backup. They were sure. my, uh, guides when I needed to find some obscure space in the ship that I would never have found. <laughs> so they're around the corner and um, they said fairly soon, they said, well, first of all, that typewriter mugs left you is terrible. Let's get rid of that. And they brought me an IBM Selectric. Oh, nice. You've, been, was, you've modernized. Yeah. Uh, I was cooking then. I was happy. And they said, no, we think we got a better space for you too. So I moved kind of across the hall toward the starboard Swanson. And uh, it was a space on the side of the ship. Mm -hmm. Same deck level. One bulkhead, the inside one was, was vertical. The other side, it was angled at about 45 degrees because it was the, the outer skin of the ship. Right. So that's where I put my supplies things up, up on that. Mm -hmm. I had a small desk, uh, a chair with a rope tied to it, <laughs> I had a, a little uh, file, <laughs> some files and uh, a cube safe, a steel block cube safe that I kept my pistol in and my evidence. And then I had a, um, a chair for a witness or suspect. That was it. Bare bones, baby. But I was, I was close to the wardroom where I ate. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the other side of the wardroom and down a hatch was my stateroom. And I 
you know, I was able to uh, thank God to have a stateroom that was separate from the office. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty nice. Um, but did, having you share the, did you share your stateroom with another officer? No, I did not. And I, wow. I was grateful for that too. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause I'd kept uh, late hours. Uh, I pretty much for the first three months I ate, slept and worked. Mm -hmm. I didn't watch a movie. I didn't, you know, I would go out at least once a day to mm -hmm. look at outside the ship. So I didn't go crazy from being <laughs> in the steel box. I would yeah. you know, get a little fresh air and look out. Usually it's sunshiny. The Russians were out there half the time. We could, they came close. We could wave at, wave <laughs> at them. Uh, so who was your uh, commanding officer at the time? Do you remember his name? Uh, was, uh, Carmichael. It was a captain Carmichael. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember his real first name, but they called him Hoagie as Hoagie a joke. Carmichael. <laughs> he was an aviator. So that, you know, they all had nicknames and yeah, sure. Uh, I dealt with um, the XO mostly and the legal officer. Mm -hmm. I ate dinner with uh, the miscellaneous people. The uh, X division was what they, call all of us that didn't we didn't fly airplanes we didn't drive the ship and we didn't uh repair anything <laughs> anything mechanical so i ate, ate uh meals with uh the marine co who was a sure. captain mm -hmm. um, mark charles was his name great guy yeah he he taught a martial arts class on the ship so i would go work out with him a lot we, that's awesome we shared black eyes and other injuries <laughs> uh, the ship's doctors the dentist mm -hmm. uh, chaplains you know i knew all the chaplains and, and the legal officer of course and mm -hmm. we all ate there and then so there was if you started from aft there was the dirty shirt wardroom where the pilots could come get a, a meal late at night mm -hmm. and they could wear their flight suits mm -hmm. and then there was the the informal wardroom where um, we could just, you could come and go and eat as you wanted. Mm -hmm. And then there was the formal wardroom for the, the captain and the department heads of the ship. And that's where you had to do the Navy thing, sit at the table, wait till the captain gets there mm -hmm. before you eat and so forth. Um, none of us had to, had to do that. <laughs> uh, I had, you know, I, just the hardest I think I worked in my whole career because yeah. it was nothing but work. And this was in the days <clears throat> in the Navy before your analysis. Yeah. So uh, uh, drugs were everywhere. We were going into the Philippines. We went into Mombasa. Um, drugs were cheap in the Philippines. They were even cheaper in Africa. And uh the sailors would come up with these really creative ways to smuggle them aboard ship. So uh, lots and lots of marijuana. I seized at the street value in that day, over $20,000 of marijuana. Wow. It was so much it wouldn't fit in my safe. Wow. So I would send it as quick as I got it. I'd send it off to the crime lab, Camp Zama in, in Japan. Mm -hmm. And with instructions on it, do not send this back to me, send it to Yokosuka, to the NIS office there after the analysis is done. Mm -hmm. 
in, in one case, the, uh, or actually two cases, but that were related, the marijuana was hidden in communal spaces mm -hmm. so that if it's found, it can't be pinned on the, the drug dealer. Sure. So I had the lab fingerprint that stuff. I, one of the things, uh, um, one of the batches was hidden in a package that a piece of electronics equipment had come in. Mm -hmm. So I got with the master arms and they had uh, some temporary duty master arms assigned to them from different parts of the ship. And so I had them all look at this package and I said, what, what the hell is this thing and where'd it come from? Mm -hmm. It came from one small unit on the ship that only had 15 sailors working there. So I fingerprinted all 15 sailors, took the better part of a day, I'll major prints. Yeah. And then I sent the, with the evidence to the lab and I said, before you analyze any of the drugs, take all of this packages, all the rolled up baggies and everything mm -hmm. and process it for prints and then compare it with these I sent to you. Right. I got matches on two guys. Wow. Good stuff. And then, uh, then I start digging into them and it turns out these guys are rolling in the money. Every time they go into port, they pay somebody to take their duty so they can go on Liberty. <laughs> and they're, wow. you know, <clears throat> they're uh, sailors that are, considered good performers they're all petty officers and doing well and wow so we took both of them to court martial and had a young prosecutor which is not unusual for the navy sure um, unlike in federal court we were not allowed even as the case agent to sit in on the court martial that's right yeah you know, on every federal case i ever had i'm in the courtroom during the trial yeah. But uh, the military couldn't seem to figure out how to do that. So I'm not in there. And it turns out on the first guy that went to trial on his defense, they put some other sailor up there who worked for him who said, well, these are sandwich bags and we use those for spare parts in the, in the um, shop. Mm -hmm. So his fingerprints could have easily gotten on these before the drugs were put in, it had nothing to do with the drugs. Hmm. So they acquitted the guy. Oh my goodness. And then after the trial, the prosecutor calls me up and he says, I'm sorry, we lost this. Here's what happened. And I said, you're kidding me. I said, I'm a former supply officer. I said, the Navy doesn't carry that type of sandwich bags. The best, they're not in the supply system. We yeah. never use those. Right. You get them at the commissary to pack your kids lunch in for school. Oh my gosh. So when the second court martial came, he put me on the witness stand in advance to say that. Mm -hmm. Then he put the petty officer in charge of the department on the witness stand to say, we don't use those in our shop. Right. You know, that's private stuff. Mm -hmm. So that guy went to prison got convicted. The other guy, unfortunately, got free just because 
I wasn't there and a the prosecutor didn't stop yeah. and call me and say, yeah, that's, that, that was the frustrating thing about it during, cause I remember when I was a young agent, they would, didn't want us, they couldn't, wouldn't let us into the courtroom. They do it. That's it's typical now to uh, the agent to be sitting at the right hand of the prosecutor so he can uh, pass him notes on aspects of the case as it comes in. But in those days, it just wouldn't let us in there. Yeah. Um, and we lost this case. And, and even if he didn't do that, he could have had a recess and stepped out and called me and said, what do you think about this? Yeah, but sure. You know, he didn't. So we lost it. Um, kind of breaks my heart a little bit to this day, but you got to let. Yeah, you, you have to let those go. You win some, lose some. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so you're you're on the midway, and you guys were. Where were you when the Iranian hostage crisis happened? We had uh, we'd gone to Subic Bay, then we went to Perth, Australia, which is where I hope I go when I die, and if I've been a good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we left Perth. Yeah. And we're halfway across the Indian Ocean in the middle of the night for a reason unknown to most of us. We feel the ship turn headed mm. north. And then the ship turns back, headed west, because we were supposed to be going to, to Mombasa, Kenya. Okay. And I find out, I also, you know, ate breakfast and lunch and dinner with the intel officer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> one of those ex guys yeah uh, here's what just happened in iran and uh they had us turn north and then they decided that it's not that urgent we can go ahead and make the port call on mombasa okay um so we went on to mombasa i i flew in in advance met with the kenyan police i'd done the same thing in perth mm -hmm. uh, and kind of set things up there. So if something happened that I got notified mm -hmm. um, and we uh, had what turned out to be a quiet stay there in Mombasa. Hey, can I stop you for a second? Cause I, I want to ask you a question. So um, just for the audience purposes, um, when an agent, uh, when a ship goes to port, typically it's typical for the agent to be part of the, um, a shore team, whatever, to go and uh, coordinate things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. That um, If we're going into a port where there's not an NIS, NCIS presence, mm -hmm. we would usually go in advance to make sure the local police know who we are and uh, that we're, we're there to help. And mm -hmm. if there's a problem involving U.S. personnel that we want to know about it. Um, and uh, you know, sometimes give them some mementos or something, a plaque or a hat or something. Uh, and here's how to contact us. And, sure. and you know, we uh, nowadays we would also do a little force protection. I suspect look at the facilities in the port and see if there's a problem. If someone else hasn't already done that. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, uh, you know, it was pretty easy and in uh, Perth because they spoke a variation of the English language. And uh, in Mombasa, it turned out that uh, pretty much everybody that we needed to deal with spoke English also. Uh, <laughs> Good things. Better than the Australians, I thought, but uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> 
and the, and the Australians would laugh at that very comment right there, right? Oh, they would. They were great. They were great. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I had a good thing in Perth. Uh, the only thing that came up was uh, local newspaper uh, published an account with photographs of some uh, prescription medicine bottles that floated up on the beach there, uh, the type you, you would inject with a syringe, and they had Japanese markings on them. And the Midway was homeported in Japan. Mm -hmm. The next day after the Midway arrives, these Japanese marked drug bottles float up on the beach. There had to be a connection there. Right. So right. I explained to the detectives there that the US military doesn't use Japanese pharmaceutical drugs Mm -hmm. at all so it could have come from some japanese fishing vessel or something else merchant vessel but it certainly didn't come from any of the u.s ships so that was the end of that international crisis prevented good <laughs> uh, and, and, and with that bunch of guys they they always wanted to go have lunch at the uh the irish club and I really wasn't used to drinking at lunch. And so it, <laughs> those guys was a challenge. Uh, the West Australia state police headquarters was in Perth and the first floor was a bar. So at four 30, yeah, they were headed. <laughs> oh, I had the same experience in Hong Kong. There was like, there's always a pub in the uh, police station. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, God bless the British for leaving that. <laughs> Everywhere they go, uh, but yeah, it was good. Uh, I almost by accident bumped into some Peace Corps workers in Mombasa, mm -hmm. and so I'm asking them all kinds of questions about what's going on there locally. And they took me to a Middle Eastern restaurant across the street from a mosque. So while the call to prayers is going, we're we're having dinner, and then the last night they they took me to an Indian restaurant, which uh, was great until the next day. <laughs> Ended up with amoebic dysentery. Oh my gosh. No. Uh, but, but I got some good intel from them. I found out, you know, the, the local street price for a uh, kilo of marijuana was $3 US. Oh my goodness. And, um, you know, pretty much everything else was available there too. And, you know, I got all the, all the scoop on it, you know, that, I would have never gotten from the police. Yeah, the Peace Corps, that's a, they were handy to, to have around, I suppose, huh? Yeah, <laughs> they were good folks. <laughs> uh, except, well, watch out uh, with the restaurant recommendation. <laughs> anyway. Um, oh, man. So what was the next port of call after well, Mombasa? We left Mombasa and didn't see land for 122 days, huh. which was the post-World War II record at that time. Did you get a still beach day? We did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as we, we went up to the, the mouth of the Gulf of Oman and we okay. basically went in circles. Mm -hmm. um, we were the only carrier task force in the Indian Ocean at the time. Um, so the, the Kitty Hawk joined us. A month or two later, 
so you know we were all going in circles and then another carrier task force came out and relieved us and uh, it was on our way out that we got a, a steel beach picnic and a um, do-it-yourself air show with live bomb droppings and just the best uh, <laughs> and uh two uh, soviet bear bombers joined the air show and flew in uh, just over deck level mm -hmm. so uh, we got a close wow. up look at those things uh so uh, just to explain what a still beach day, uh, what, what happens at a still beach day, why don't you explain that, what a still beach day is? Yeah, it's uh, uh, the, the, on the midway, they call it the steel beach picnic. Mm -hmm. So they would uh, shut down air operations except for the two uh, ready jets that were on the catapult and uh, <clears throat> bring out some cookers and some charcoal and hot dogs and hamburgers and, and, have a big picnic, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, about the most fun you can have with a uh, 5,000 guys in the middle of an ocean. Yeah, sure. And did, a, did, was there beer served at this still beach? There was not, picnic? no. Oh, okay. So we hadn't made the, the time there for the, for the two beers, right? No. Uh, or we just didn't have it. I don't know what you yeah, was. Probably didn't have it because you hadn't made a port call and a place where you uh, pick up beer for it. Um, so we did that in the air show, um, trying to think, uh, uh, we'd also crossed the equator on the way there. Okay. You know, I didn't mention that. So I'm officially shell back. Okay. Very good. So, so tell, tell everybody it's your experience about becoming a, a leap, not, not being a polywog anymore and becoming a shell back. The, the ceremony is uh, when you cross the equator on a Navy ship, if you've never done so before, you're, you're a polywog. And uh, after the initiation ceremony, which probably is a lot like college fraternity hazing, mm -hmm. you, you become a shellback and you get a fancy little certificate and you spend the rest of the day trying to wash your clothes out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's some unique things that you had to do to, uh, to finish that uh, exercise. We don't, we don't, we could, we, if you want to get into them, we can, if you don't, uh, you don't have to. No, I think that's best left as a secret. So that uh, if somebody has that, in the future, they have a surprise. I didn't manage to get myself made a special case, oh. which I knew was going to happen anyway. Yeah. So a week or two in advance of this, I put out, NIS wanted posters on uh, the major figures in, in uh, you know, Davy Jones and, and, uh -huh. uh, <laughs> so, and, and uh, complete with my crude illustrations and uh, the offenses they were wanted for. So I, I was immediately made a special case. And, Did you and, get to keep your charge sheet? I don't think I have that. I don't know what happened. Uh, wow. Maybe the fire hose washed it over the side, but uh, yeah, I never saw it. <laughs> That's good stuff. Uh, oh, my a, goodness, a good time with that. It was yeah. all good natured fun. Mm -hmm. Those were those were good times. So, yeah. um, after uh, you get out of Mombasa, you guys finished uh, your circles in the um, Gulf of Oman, and where do you go from there? We went from there back to the Philippines. Okay, we stayed a few days at Subic Bay. 
um, then we headed back to Yokosuka. And it, it, it ended up being five months we were gone instead of so, three. So um, it, as normal, were you, did you do any narcotics operations in Subic Bay when you guys were there? Uh, we did not. And I don't, I guess they had uh, kind of ongoing ops, but I was not involved in. Oh, okay. Cause I, I knew that was kind of a typical, you know, carrier pull into Subic Bay and they would work with the carrier to recruit master arms or something to go out and do drug buys before sales yeah. hit the streets. And in fact, I wrote a, an information report on what I'd found out in Mombasa mm-hmm. and the stats that I collected on the drug seized on the ship before the port call there and after the port call there and sent it in. And uh, from there on out, Subic Bay started doing drug suppression ops in Mombasa. And I think they were, you know, very successful there. Sure. Till the word got out uh, to leave U.S. sailors alone. Yeah. So which was the which was the goal of the operation, right? Yeah. And, you know, that's why I wrote it all up. No, no one had ever done that there. And it, it was uh, if we we're going to go there. Mm-hmm. You need to be aware there's a problem. Wow. Wow. So I'm, I'm pretty sure the ship was appreciative of that because, I mean, you, you achieved the goal of, you know, protecting the ship or the sailors from people who are trying to sell them drugs. I think so. I think the, yeah. uh, the legal officer wasn't really sure what to think about me when I wandered onto the ship that night before we left port uh-huh. and he was standing <laughs> on the quarter deck there you know hi <laughs> west Virginia, come aboard <laughs> after you've been but, uh, been to the party uh, we were buddies by the time it was over with oh good oh that's good uh, stuff so what is your what is your best memory of being on the mid- midway i think it was you know the the people that i worked with uh which is really, you know, through my career, that's really the most memorable things. Cases are, are of course, memorable. Mm-hmm. Um, I've unfortunately forgotten more than I remember, but, sure. uh, but the, you know, the, the great people that you work with, in this case, the ship's crew, the master arms, uh, uh, even one of my informants who I nicknamed the weasel because he could, <laughs> get in and out of any place and find stuff. <laughs> uh, oh my God. You know, I was, it was, you know, that was what it was about is the people and the relationships. So uh, one other thing I'd like to talk about in the midway, did it, it's typical that when you brief the commanding officer of the ship on an investigation, it's usually done on the bridge. Can you talk about that process or how many times, or, you know, time that you had to do that with the CEO? You know, I, I actually never briefed the CO directly uh, during my time there. I would. Is that right? Wow. Almost always the XO. Wow. And, uh, I'm Cola. Must be the IRS, someone from Washington. <laughs> They're maybe telling me I'm yeah. not supposed to talk to you about this or that. that well, that's typically what I, I label those spam calls. <laughs> yeah, it is now. But, uh, the uh, XO wanted me to brief him. And so when I saw the CO, it was, you know, almost more social. Yeah, sure. uh, the legal officer, I briefed on just about everything mm-hmm. all the time. And the XO, higher level, the, you know, there was one case that they asked me to do 
as a favor, which I probably might not have opened on. But someone started an underground newsletter on the ship. Oh my goodness! And it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I wasn't subversive or anything, but it was disrespectful and it was uh, <clears throat> undermining morale potentially. But they were using government resources to produce this thing. Oh, okay. so that was that was my hook. I opened it. As <laughs> case. Yeah, and I, it didn't take long to solve that, and they they really appreciated that. Sure, uh, I had one um, one case where the Marines had they had small arms and mm -hmm. and uh, grenades and things on board the ship to perform their duties mm -hmm. someone tried to steal one of the hand grenades oh and they got cold feet when they got to the best deck level climbing mm -hmm. up out of somewhere and so they set it there in a little nook right there by a, a ladder and one of the other marines found it and the alert went out. Oh boy. Um, <clears throat> so we never found who did it. It turns out that those cardboard containers won't hold a fingerprint. They're fuzzy cardboard for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And so we couldn't get a fingerprint off of that. Uh, once I took that off to send it to the lab, the ordinance officer said, I, I can't put this grenade back in the armory without mm -hmm. the container. Right. So uh, he said, I've, I've got to throw it over the side and dispose of it. I said, can I come watch and can you pull the pin when you do it? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, uh, in this agents, NIS agents, all pyromaniacs at heart. <laughs> yeah. he said, we want to see stuff blow up. <laughs> he said, you have no idea the paperwork I have to fill out if I set off an underwater explosion. Oh my gosh, that's funny. That is funny. Wow. Good grief. So, the, uh, um, so the one unusual highlight. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> The, uh, the skipper was about to transfer off the ship when we got back. Okay. So his relief was coming in. And the Catholic chaplain wanted to have a special dinner for uh, the captain and the X Division people, which included me. Thank God. Okay. Uh, uh, the Catholic chaplain had studied in France. His, his uh, order of priesthood was based in France and in his spare time there, he had gone to culinary school. Very nice. Yes. <laughs> so we had a full multi-course gourmet French dinner in the, <clears throat> in the captain's quarters, missing only the wine. Oh. And I was, it was just one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. I can imagine because I mean, a little, menu from it somewhere in my souvenirs better than sliders oh, yeah. <laughs> powdered eggs powdered eggs oh my gosh uh, yeah. brings back memories yeah oh my goodness so the the ship goes um back to japan the co's uh break how long did you stay on the the midway 
I was on for a total of six months. Uh, okay. The cruise was five months. So mm -hmm. I was wrapping things up, you know, getting cases to court martial when we got back. Okay. I mean, and then, so who, uh, who, uh, who took your place? Uh, Al Carballo took my place. Really? Al and, Carballo, another name. And I, I, uh, not soon after he took over, I, I, Al came back in the office. Can't believe what you did to me. <laughs> <laughs> I had, you know, the master arms, um, they live with a, with a wheel book. They call it a, a green <laughs> uh, government note pad that'll fit in your pocket and they carry it everywhere and they make their notes in it. But that doesn't really work for us because NIS, NCIS policy, your notes have to be in the case file mm -hmm. that they pertain to. Well, up and down ladders all over that ship, carrying a, a notepad, a clipboard, that doesn't always work. And if you don't have to have it, then I don't. So my solution was three by five cards. Okay. So I've got all these three by five cards with notes on them, properly initialed and dated, a case title on it. And they're in the case folder in the uh -huh. office. Well, Al doesn't know this, so he picks one up and starts out with it, and tilts it, and three by five cards go oh. all over the deck. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, what is this? <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. So he still reminds me of that every now and then. I bet he does. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So your time in Midway was a good time then. You, you enjoyed your very satisfying, very, you know, very stressful at times. I was doing an interrogation of one suspect one time and I had to got interrupted and I had to postpone it, tell him I'll catch him later and finish. <clears throat> There'd been an aggravated assault and I had two guys in sick bay. Oh my God. You know, one had a knife, the other had a dogging wrench, and they were going at each other. Oh boy. So uh, you couldn't always plan your day. No, I, I think I peaked out at around 50 open cases at one time wow. and I, I had to just rotate files in order to make sure I didn't leave one, neglect one, mm -hmm. I kept them all moving. <clears throat> uh, anyone that ever goes on a carrier experiences what you experience, which is, it's probably the busiest you ever be. And it's, probably some of the best work you'll ever do. Yeah. And if you're at sea, it's not like you're going somewhere. Yeah. You might as well work. The movies are not that good. <laughs> There's only so many times you can see how the West was won, you know, oh, yeah. and, and over and over again. And uh 69 and 70, the movies were all on VHS tape. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh man. All right. So uh so I'm going to say that that was a probably a pretty good time while you were on the Midway. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One I'll so, never forget. What was your, so what was your follow-up? Uh, uh, so where do you go from Yakuska? What, what, uh, what's your next stop? So I had asked for someplace in the South or Southeast. And after some arguing back and forth with headquarters, uh, <clears throat> I managed to get Gulfport, Mississippi. Oh, wow. 
Interesting. That was not the headquarters' first choice, but uh, they wanted to send me to Oakland, and I had said, please don't send me to the West Coast. Yeah. I said, but if you have to send me to the West Coast, mm -hmm. send me to a, a larger office. I really don't want to go to a one- or two-man office. Right. Well, they were sending me to a one-man office in Oakland. Oh. And I, so I went to, went to the sack and I said, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> it was Bill Warchuk at the time. Okay. I said, I said, have I been screwing up here? Have I been, you know, I'm a poor performer. <laughs> They're not even listening to what I say. Uh -huh. I said, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't that specific. I left a lot of options open here. Mm -hmm. I said, I prefer the Southeast, but if I don't get it, just send me to a larger office. Yeah. And he said, let me let you go down and talk to the RDO. And, and it was uh, Conrad Tuesday. Okay. Okay. And he said, he said, David, I, I got to tell you, I've always taken whatever they gave me. And I thought it was good for my career and it's the best way for me to get promoted. I said, well, I appreciate that. And I'm glad that worked for you. I said, but I really like working cases. And I said, I've been a supervisor before I was in the Navy. I had 50 people working for me. I know what that's like. And I really like my job now. I said, I want to be a street agent. So I'm not particularly cared about impressing somebody in Washington by taking what they give me. Sure. You know, I think I'd done a good job. I think I deserve a little consideration. He says, well, I'll call him, but I think you're making a mistake. I said, Conrad, I promise the day that I look at my boss and say, God, that guy's having more fun than I do. I wish I had his job. Yeah. I, said, I will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he apparently called somebody in uh, Washington and they, they uh, dragged Dennis Smith out of Gulfport yelling and screaming and gave me a <laughs> <laughs> time for you to go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, big change of pace, but I could, uh, easily drive to home to see my family in seven hours or so. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of nice. Yeah. That's that was, great. That's great. So what kind of, what was, a, what was your best memory of Gulfport, Mississippi? Well, I, I was able to go to grad school at night, get my master's. Oh, wow. So that was a good thing. Yeah, sure. But uh, I knew about the CV, so I knew what they were like. They're sort of yeah. like, um, they're, they're a little bit like Marines, like undisciplined Marines who <laughs> have a proclivity for theft. Yeah. <laughs> so just so I knows, Gulfport, Mississippi is is primarily a place where CBs are, a, are go to, right? Yeah, it's the headquarters for uh, CBs on the East Coast. Okay. So the all uh, the East Coast CB battalions are homeported where they are were at that time. Um, we covered actually. We had we did a lot of lead work out of there, so we covered about half of Mississippi. And I occasionally did some leads in Louisiana. Yeah, sure. Uh, when Operation Ripstop 
came, uh, the Marine Corps uh, 782 gear theft sting operation. Uh, there was a, a lead on that in uh, Monroe, Louisiana, which was about an hour from my hometown. So I covered that, went up, worked with the FBI on that, and did a search warrant. But uh, we did, uh, we had some rapes, we had some uh, drug cases, um, some thefts and, you know, the usual sort of, every kind of lead you can imagine. Sure. Uh, worked a lot with the Gulfport police, uh, Gulfport, um, Harrison County Sheriff's Department. Mm -hmm. All great folks. Uh, for uh, a year that time, I was by myself. I, I was with Bob Robbins at first. And oh, Bob, wow. Bob Robbins. That's a good name. Uh, great guy. Yeah. Good partner. Uh, my house flooded. I had to borrow Bob's car to go looking for a place to live. Uh, and uh, Bob was great. Uh, his whole family was just real supportive. Yeah. Um, Bob transferred out. Uh, I can't even remember now where he went, but uh, they hired a new guy to start there. And he was uh, from Alabama, from a police department there. Auburn. And I. Is it Murray Strait? I can't. I no, I can't remember the guy's name, but. You wouldn't know it, I promise, because uh -huh. he stayed one day. Wow, really? One day. I took him over and got him a BOQ room to uh, stay in until he could get settled, move his family down. And I drove him to New Orleans to get signed in and get his creds and gun and got back to Gulfport. And we're close to the end of the day. He says, I don't know how to tell you this, but... Uh, I'm quitting. <laughs> I had been Gulfport's a nice place. Yeah, it's a great place. But uh, turns out his uh, when he gave his his notice to the PD, they said, "Well, why don't you just go down and check the job out? We'll put you down as on vacation, and we really don't want to lose you. So go down there and check it out." Mm -hmm. They knew, I think, that his wife didn't want to move. Right. So he, I don't know what went on between him and his wife, but that was the thing, I'm sure of it. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so it took another year to get somebody hired on there. So I was by myself right. for that year. Um, it was kind of a tough year. Uh, but managed to get Mike Hurley hired. Oh, nice. On there. Nice. And he didn't have to move. He was local. So yeah, sure. Know, got Mike was a great guy. I'd worked oh, with yeah, him. Of course. Um, but uh, that, that was the toughest year there. Cause I was by myself and I really uh, was doing two man job and not getting a lot of sympathy for my yeah. circumstances. Yeah, sure. But we got through that and, and, um, and moved on and, um, at, uh, toward my, you know, my last year there, my, uh, wife at the time, who's now my ex-wife wanted to go to a graduate school with a very specific program. There were only a couple in the country. And one of the places was LA. 
So I put in my preferences in September and said, next summer, I really like to be considered for transfer to Los Angeles. Okay. And I don't know how it got through the system so quick, but a week later I get a call and they said, how soon can you move? <laughs> I said, did you not read this? <laughs> they had to check your sanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I said, look, here's the deal. I'm in grad school. I finish in March. Mm -hmm. They said, well, is there any way you can work it out with them that you could go in February? They're really pushing this. I said, let me call. So I call my advisor. He was a really good guy. He's really supportive. He says, you're doing great. And he's, <clears throat> he says, we'll just waive the final exam on your last two courses and mail you the diploma. He said, <laughs> he said, he said, by the way, did I tell you you made the highest GRE score we've ever seen? I, said, <laughs> no, I thought I barely passed it. <laughs> we also made the highest score on a written comprehensive of anybody in the, in the program. I said, You're good. <laughs> That's said, funny. Okay. So, I, so I left in February and went to LA and they said, uh, you're, you're going to be the fraud squad leader. We've got a starting a fraud squad there. Okay. I called Janet, one of, one of the uh, admin people there who I knew from my previous tour. Mm -hmm. I said, Janet, they're sending me there as the fraud squad leader. She said, what fraud squad? <laughs> I said, I I'm in trouble. Uh -oh. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Not good. Not good. <laughs> can, I, can I hold on for 30 seconds? My dog. Yeah, sure. Needs to be lit out. No problem. Dog's been in the kennel too long. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I bet. He's like, hey, we, we're at two hours and 27 minutes. Do you need to take a break? I'm, I'm good, but uh, okay. I'm, you know, whatever works for you, we can, we can uh, continue or do it again another time or something. No, it's, it's, it's it, however, you, however long you want to go. We're, uh, we're just going to, to Los Angeles to Fraud Squad. I'm not sure what year this is, but. Uh, this was 1985. 1985. So this is March of 1985, and you found out that you are going to be leading a fraud squad that doesn't exist. Yeah. In Los Angeles, but, California, at Long Beach Naval Station. Yeah. So I get there, and uh, I kind of walked into a, a snake pit. Uh, I won't. You know, there's some personalities involved on sure. people that are not dead yet. So I won't go into all the details of that. <laughs> sure. Uh, you can just call them John Smith and <laughs> yeah. So, um, if they're out there, just uh, be aware that if I outlive you, the truth's coming out. <laughs> anyway, 
so they they were just in the process of um, splitting the office up and mm -hmm. pumping people in to create a fraud squad and uh, FCI squad mm -hmm. because of the Walker thing. Um, you know, the money was coming out to try to make sure that didn't happen again. Sure. Um, so um, there were some personality problems in the office. Mm -hmm. uh, there was some resistance to the idea of fraud agents not working a dual caseload crim and fraud right. as uh, in, even though headquarters had put out strong policy documents saying that fraud dedicated agents were to work only fraud cases. Sure. So um, I had, uh, I think, four agents, young agents there, and it was learn as you do. Mm -hmm. The... Um, You know, there were there were struggles over uh, our being expected to work crim cases. Um, I heard shortly after being there, someone mentioned DCIS, and I said, "What is DCIS?" Mm -hmm. uh, and I found out Defense Criminal Investigative Service, and they were uh, working fraud cases, and they had put manpower into all the areas where we had not right and uh, los angeles and orange county california was one of those places right. um, a lot of defense contractors there and they had their foot in the door at the u.s attorney's office and we did not sure the u.s attorney didn't know who we were mm -hmm. so we had uh, quite an uphill battle um uh, by the end of the year, uh, Brian Stamper came in as the the um, fraud ASAC. Right. So it was, you know, it was upgraded from squad leader to ASAC, and he took over uh, fighting the battles that I had struggled to fight, and freed me up to get back to work doing what I was supposed to be paid to do. Um, and we gradually got uh, started learning uh, that uh, the money in these fraud cases was in defense contractor cases, bribery of government officials, um, public corruption type things. And we built it up in five years to, uh, or less than five years to a regional fraud office. Right. And Rod Miller came in as the SAC of the regional fraud office there. Sure. Um, we were cooking uh, by then. We had, you know, defective product, product substitution cases. We had mm -hmm. bribery cases that were going to federal court. Uh, we were, you know, wiring up folks. And we, we had uh, our branch of the Illwind investigation mm -hmm. out there. We had several wires running with the FBI. Um, Could you explain what the Illwin investigation was? Yeah, the <clears throat> the Illwin investigation started in Washington D.C., and it was a uh, bribery 
uh, investigation that really went in a lot of directions, but uh, the, somehow the agents there, and I, I still don't know the full history on it, were able to compromise and, and flip some government employees that were accepting bribes from defense contractors to steer money and uh, contracts in their direction. Uh, Stuart Berlin was, was the one of them that I know because I, I talked to Stuart one evening, a couple of years later, but out of the investigation, the tentacles ran all over the country. And in LA, there were several uh, court ordered wiretaps that were set up, which uh, NIS and the FBI manned. Um, and um, they supported cases in the DC area. The prosecutions for most of those went to the DC area. Um, <clears throat> the interesting thing for me was that I think there were, you know, a good bit of money recovered, but the, more importantly, there were, they shut down a lot of um, corrupt government employees that were taking bribes and, okay. and the contractors who were paying them. I had, when I first got to LA, I'd inherited a product substitution investigation on a company named Amex. The, uh, <clears throat> I'd helped actually with a search warrant there. And we were struggling with that case for a couple of years, trying to figure out what was going on because they were making electronics components for the Navy and they were defective, but the Navy didn't care. Hmm. And a key component of prosecution of, of a product substitution case is there has to be some impact. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, when, when we dug into it, it turns out that the working Navy out in the field didn't want these things. They had no use for them really. So we're, we're uh, I'm, really struggling. How am I ever going to prosecute this case yeah. on this guy? The president, it was a, um, a minority owned small business. And the owner was a guy named Manuel Caldera or yeah. Manny is what he went by. He had a picture of himself and president Reagan on the wall of his office, you know, arm around each other. Um, And we saw that when we did the search warrant. So we, we knew we were in for a challenge here. He, um, I just, you know, I couldn't pull this thing together until I get a call from one of the guys with the ill wind that uh, this guy that they caught taking bribes, Stuart Berlin, had taken bribes from Manny Caldera. So I get the okay to fly to Washington to talk to Stuart Berlin, which in, in the eighties flying across the country on a case. That was rare. One interview just didn't happen. It just yeah. didn't happen. No. <laughs> so, you know, I get back there and, and I, you know, they brief me on all the case and what's going on, which I didn't really care about, but it was interesting. 
I just want to talk to Manny Caldera. <laughs> I mean, and find out about my guy. And uh, so I was there for three days at the five o'clock on the last day. They finally get Stuart Berlin in to the U.S. Attorney's Office for me to talk to. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there with the U.S. Attorney, the FBI case agent, and the NIS case agent, and Stuart Berlin. And I said, Mr. Berlin, how, how did uh, Caldera pay you for steering these contracts to him? He said, well, he uh, gave me a percentage of the value of the contract. I said, okay, uh, did you, what'd you do with that? Did you, did you pay you by check mm -hmm. or cash or what? He said, no, it's always cash. I said, okay, did you go deposit that cash in the bank? No, I never did. I kept it at home. Right. Uh, <laughs> the guys are, you know, around me are saying, you're wasting your time. You're wasting time. <laughs> and I said, Stuart, did you keep a record of any of this? He says, oh, yeah. And you can awesome. see eyes go. <laughs> and I said, where is that record? He said, these guys have it. You know, again, the eyes are. <laughs> so tell me about that. He says, yeah, on a folded up piece of paper in my wallet when they arrested me and they never gave it back to me. He said, in fact, Caldera still owes me some of the money. So he said, I've got the contract number and the amount and the date on there. Wow. And then sounds like paid, an accountant. He, he takes yeah. records of everything. He said, after he paid me on each one, I underlined it. So you'll see the last couple of them. He hasn't paid me yet. <laughs> so one of them runs wow. back there to the evidence and uh, pulls it out. And, and uh, sure enough, there it is there. You know, there's a case I said, okay, nice meeting you. I'm back to LA. Golly. <laughs> Amazing. And, you know, those guys, I, you know, they were so buried in information. Sure. Sometimes you need somebody cool. to come in and say, hey, I'm looking at the trees from outside the forest. Yeah, because I, I only cared about this one thing. Yeah. You know, uh, only this one thing. And so uh, he had sold his company uh, called Arrowhead and, and for, I think, $40 million. Okay. And he moved to Palm Springs and had a mansion out there. So I, I later was told that when they went out to arrest him, he met him at the, the gate with a smoking jacket on the cigar and his. <laughs> God. That sounds like something out of a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we put other pieces together. You know, one of the FBI agents I worked with and I talked to a, um, somebody that the FBI had, but we, we had to sneak around to meet this guy. We had to fly to Dallas and go to a coffee shop, at the airport, mm -hmm. be there wearing a certain color jacket, sitting in a booth. And he starts telling us that, you know, that, Oh yeah. Caldera. He, he would pay for vacations for these people. Uh, not just the government people, but uh, you know, <clears throat> people at other contractors and fly them, to Baja California and put them on his yacht and wine and dine them there. All this. Oh gosh. It's incredible. <clears throat> so, so, I mean, so your time uh, with conducting fraud investigations was actually, you, you had, you had some great, you had, had great cases. 
about yeah. um, you. You mentioned that you uh, worked a, a, a Genis, a U.S. versus Genisco. Uh, is yeah, that, that did I pronounce that right? Genisco. Genisco. Yeah. Okay. They they made the uh, transducer for the harm missile, and the transducer was the key. It was one of twenty something critical components on the missile. Mm-hmm. The harm missile is uh, what's used to attack enemy radar installations before our aircraft come in to um, make bombing runs to make sure right. that the anti-aircraft batteries are taken out. Mm-hmm. It was state-of-the-art at the time. And the uh, transducer tells the missile what altitude it is by giving it air pressure information. Genesco uh, discovered that they couldn't make them to specifications at the price that they'd bid the job at. Okay. So they came up with ways to cheat on the testing data and uh, started producing essentially untested transducers, which got into the fleet. The Navy had them, the Air Force had them. Uh, they also made a similar product for uh, other military equipment, but the most important one was the harm missile. So it was a joint DCIS, NIS, FBI operation. Uh, we we uh, did two search warrants on the company because we ended up with two informants, one who was a former employee of the company and one who was a current employee. And so he said, yeah, he calls one of the agents up and says, hey, after you guys left, we went right back to cheating on testing. Wow. So, so we, we wow. go get another search warrant and go back and hit them again. Uh, and it makes, uh, you know, the national news, um, uh, the company. Made 60 Minutes, right? Yeah. And uh, CBS 60 Minutes program decided to do a segment on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Mike Wallace was the, the lead. So <laughs> the legendary Mike Wallace. Yeah. You can still Google this. You can find it. It's on uh, YouTube. I'll have to do that. And they inview- interviewed uh, the U S attorney. Mm-hmm. They interviewed uh, the, well, they, they wanted to interview the FBI case agent. The FBI says, no, you can interview the supervisor. Mm-hmm. You can't interview the case agent. And they said, well, we don't want to talk to the supervisor. So, so DCIS jumped in and said, well, you you can talk to our guy. <laughs> and uh, so uh, Steve Miller, who was the perfect person, you know, yeah. he, was, he was better on camera than I would have been. He was better. Bill Pemberton was the FBI guy. Bill sure. was a quiet guy. He, you know, Steve's a funny Southern guy, former New Orleans cop with a long handlebar mustache. And he's a perfect guy. Yeah. He's a natural ham. And so they interviewed him and then they interviewed the informant who came forward after the first search warrant. And Mm -hmm. so it it made a great segment and they interviewed the um, president of the division of the company in, in prison. And that's the, really the funniest part of it. If, uh, if they enter ever interview you on 60 minutes and you're the last one they interview, yeah, stand by. You really <laughs> so you know that. <laughs> so, so, so at one point, Mike Wallace, he's 
the guys had pled guilty. Yeah. He's in jail and he's denying that he did anything really wrong. Mm-hmm. And Mike Wallace says, Mr. Brinkschulte, this is not Alice in Wonderland. You're in prison. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. He had a, he had a great way of, you know, communicating a question or, or, or a statement. He did. <laughs> make you feel like that small, you know? Yeah. And it worked perfectly. Oh my gosh. So, uh, we, we had a great time with that. And, uh, I got to sit in the hallway with, with, uh, Mike Wallace and his producer while the other people are, you know, one by one getting interviewed. We just So what was he like in person? He's just a, you know, a calm, normal guy, but he can, you know, like anybody that does that kind of thing, he can, he can switch it on when, when the camera that. comes on and, and uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Nice to meet somebody, uh, that uh, well-known uh-huh. and who who you had seen on tv you know for years and wow and, um and he and his producer actually got in a little argument right in front of us there about did this conspiracy go beyond the company did it, you know was the the prime contractor texas instruments were they involved in this conspiracy and all and you know we wow. we covered that you know, we, we pretty much eliminated any chance of that. They, they took a beating on this thing. So, you know, they weren't going to do that. So, but, so I mentioned earlier that the, 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 the recoveries on these cases was usually really significant. Do you remember what the recovery on this did? Was a recovery on this case? It was a, a $2 million recovery on the Genesco case. Mm-hmm. And it was that small because anything more than that would have bankrupted the company. Oh, wow. We would have gotten nothing or very little or pennies on the dollar. Yeah. You also had an investigation, U.S. versus Dockwise, where uh, you had a, a 70, 70 million dollar recovery. That's yes. incredible. Yeah. And it should have been twice that. Oh, wow. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. This, this was in Dallas. It was um, shortly after I got to Dallas in 93. Mm-hmm. A uh, DCIS agent that I was working with, uh, Joan Pirro, mm-hmm. said, uh, I've been talking to the Justice Department, antitrust people, mm-hmm. and they have a case that's Navy, and they need a Navy agent to work with on this, so would you call them up and go talk to them? Mm-hmm. So I did. At that time, the antitrust division had a, a field office in Dallas. Okay. And... So I went down there um, and I met with uh, Jane Phillips, who was a senior trial attorney in the office there. And she started explaining this case to me. Um, and Dockwise is, uh, at that time, they jumped borders. They were a Dutch company and they moved to Belgium. And I'm not sure where they are now, but they, mm-hmm. for tax reasons, they were jumping back and forth according to which government would give them a better deal. Um, what they did is <clears throat> they were a, in their terminology, a semi-submersible heavy lift transport company. Okay. They owned a fleet of ships and these ships could be partially submerged so that 
an object, a floating object could be floated over the, the ship and then they would resurface and lift that object out of the water. Mm -hmm. uh, their primary business is moving floating offshore oil rigs from one part of the world to the other. Okay. But the Navy hired them to bring back the uh, Samuel B. Roberts from the Gulf of Oman after it hit a mine, broke its keel. Okay. Uh, the Navy then discovered they could move minesweepers from the U.S. to an overseas area, primarily the Gulf, without damaging the minesweepers. Sure. They could Long trip, too. You know, half a dozen of them on, a, on yeah. one of these ships. Yeah. Uh, for those who haven't been around minesweepers, they're kind of fragile, the old yeah. ones especially. They're all yeah. wood. They can't have any iron on them so what is there brass or copper or something mm -hmm. uh, and they get beat up in uh in a heavy ocean and it's not fun to be a sailor on one of those either so right so they were getting navy contracts here and there to um move stuff around the world mm -hmm. uh, the um There was only one other commercial company uh, in the world who did this. It was a Norwegian company named C-Team, owned by a, a rich uh, Norwegian businessman. And the two companies had gotten together and <clears throat> agreed on the price, who would take what jobs and what the price would be. And in doing this, they escalated the price of these transports over a, a period of years, basically uh, bleeding the customers who had nowhere else to go, short of uh, the case of the oil rigs, dragging the oil rig through the ocean um, at risk of losing the, the rig you know, if a storm right. came up and some were lost. Uh, so we found out about this agreement uh, that the agreement existed, but we didn't know how it worked, any of the details of it. And the company uh, Dockwise had an office in Houston. So that gave us a U.S. hook and in fact, a Texas hook. Mm -hmm. So we started uh, digging. I tracked down one of, one of my, uh, senior fraud agent tricks is uh, on these companies is what I call the X factor, X employees, X wives, X partners. These are the people that are going to tell you most of the time what they know about what's going on. Sure. I found every ex employee that I could of this company in the United States and <laughs> interviewed them. Oh, wow. And um, I'm sure you heard some stories. Yeah, in fact, one of them was kind of funny. One of them's father was a former Navy, uh, retired Navy. And I left my NCIS business, business card with him. Right. And, and he called his daughter and had her call me. And she said, my dad wants to know why an O&I guy was looking for me. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing on my card that said O&I. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, but we got a search warrant on the company office with all the information we collected. Um, <clears throat> we seized, uh, 
40 something boxes of documents and hauled them back to Dallas in our uh, NIS cars. You know, some of them riding so low that, you know, it's a wonder the springs didn't collapse. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and uh, we, we uh, started going through the documents and we had their job files. Uh, we knew when the agreement had started, mm-hmm. but we needed, um, we needed an impact and no one really knew how to, how to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have the actual agreement in hand. Mm-hmm. We had, um, no real, nobody there had experience in figuring this out. In the past, uh, the antitrust division had relied on the statutory limit in the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is, I think, God, 10 or $15 million. Mm -hmm. That was maxed out. It didn't matter that the company had made so much more money than that on the scam that, that they're walking away with money on the table. So we are scratching our heads together, uh, Jane, uh, Mark, the other attorney and I, and, and their supervisors and trying to see what can we do? Cause we know these guys made a lot more money than that. We don't want to go with them on that cause they'll take it and run. And, uh, so I, I remember one, conversation with Jane's supervisor one day and he just he said there's got to be a way to figure this out there just has to and I said okay I'll go think about it some more (laughs) (laughs) but it's kind of you know it's all on me to figure this out you know I don't have any audit support I don't yeah so I go and I pull out one of their case files and I find a document in there where they had analyzed all the finances related to that voyage mm-hmm. and the, the voyage uh, that they, the way they build a customer involved port fees, canal fees. If they went through a canal fuel costs, mm-hmm. fuel surcharges, uh, all these sort of things. But in the end, they condensed it down to something that they used internally is what I realized. This is how they look at it themselves to see how well they're doing. Right. It's a day rate times the number of days of the voyage. Hmm. And that transfers across all those jobs. So I pulled out those forms and I got the day rate and the number of days of the voyage for each job. Then we had to split out the jobs that we didn't have jurisdiction over where the job began and ended outside the U S so we eliminated those. And we, we, uh, uh, at that time, uh, I'm trying to do a, a, a DOS based spreadsheet. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It was terrible. And Jane came in one day and she says, you know, we've got this software in the hall that'll help you with this, but no one here knows how to use it. Uh-huh. So we'll set me up. And, you know, so they brought me 
Microsoft Excel. <laughs> and a book. <laughs> a book from Microsoft on how to use it. Oh my gosh. So has like the, it had to be like the very first Excel. Yeah. This is like 95. Um, so I'm trying to figure it out and, and I got it set up and I did a, a spreadsheet for each year. And then I came up with um, the average day rate for that year. And I started a year and a half before this, the scheme had started. So I had a base level. This is what they're averaging for that year times the number of days they, they um, and this is how much money <clears throat> they, they charge. And then I use that rate on the fall the following years. I made a separate spreadsheet for each year. Mm-hmm. Here's what they actually charged. And here's what they would have charged adjusted for, in, for inflation mm-hmm. on all those years if they had continued the rate that they had before. And this excluded fuel cost, any variables that we could kick out. Right. <clears throat> and so we came up with this huge number. And <laughs> way above $70 million, right? Yes. And uh, $4 million of it was Navy business. Okay. So Jane scheduled a meeting with these high dollar uh, Chicago attorneys that were representing the company. And they flew down to Dallas and you know, it's one of these long government tables. Oh, sure. Everybody there is an attorney except me. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a PowerPoint sitting there. So that they, they chat back and forth and the lead attorney for the uh, defense says, well, our position is that this was a legitimate business agreement. And uh, these two companies pooling their resources, they love that word pooling. And our client did not break the law. But if he did break the law, what would it take to settle this? A million dollars? <laughs> and Jay's, Jane says, maybe David should show you what he's done. So I put one year up on the board, just to pick it random one year and, and <clears throat> explain to him what it meant. And they said, oh, <laughs> we didn't realize you had done this. Let us go back and talk to our client. So they go back and um, they're kind of jerking us around for a while and we don't really know why. And there's this thing in antitrust when a client or a, a company pleads guilty, they're required to disclose any other similar agreements that they have knowledge of. Right. I didn't think about this. None of the attorneys thought about this. What are they hiding? You know? mm-hmm. So they're jerking us around. They're arguing about little minor things on, on the uh, calculations that we've got, none of which make a difference. And this other company in another part of the country walks in to the antitrust field office in Washington, D.C. and says, we want immunity. Our 
company's been involved in a bid rigging agreement with a foreign company and uh, we want to apply for the, the amnesty program that you guys have and tell you all about it. <clears throat> well, it was a sister company to this Dockwise group. Mm -hmm. In fact, located in the same building in Houston that we've done the search warrant on, but just down the hall. Wow. So the reason they didn't want to plead guilty and tell us about it is because they would have had to tell us about a, another big deal going on down the hall. Wow. So we get into this negotiations. Um, the antitrust group in Washington, D.C. really didn't want to do all the years of hard work that we had done. They didn't really want to do any. Um, uh, it didn't seem like it to me. They wanted to um, work off of this essentially confession and piggyback on ours and make a global settlement. So the <clears throat> negotiating goes back and forth and there's too many people, too many cooks in the kitchen here and they're arguing over the price. And we ended up on $70 million, 4 million goes to the Navy for restitution and the uh, three guys plead, come from Europe and plead guilty and get uh, probation. Wow. But you got a $70 million return on it. We got $70 million. And yeah. uh, if we, we had settled a year earlier, it would have been the highest recovery in antitrust prosecution history. Wow. Another case came in while all this long negotiating was going on and they, they blew us out of the water with what that time was a hundred million dollar recovery. Wow. Good roll snowballed over the next few years into like half a billion. Wow. That's just crazy numbers. Just crazy. Numbers. Yeah. But you, I mean that, but that's what I've always, uh, you know, I, I, I have to be honest. I never had any interest in fraud work. I was always doing narcotics or theft. Um, and, but when I'd always see these returns, you know, these, uh, the, 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 the money that you guys were getting in restitution to the government and was just uh, it's astounding uh, that uh, that kind of money is you know, is coming back into the government. There had, I mean, the Navy. I, I know it would go back into like a general fund, right? Um, but I'm not sure how that would work. Well, I think the, again. the four million dollars went. Uh, the The other stuff goes into a general fund, mm -hmm. but a four million dollar check was written to the Navy uh, Military Sealift Command. Okay is who contracted for these transports. And I really don't, I'm real curious what they did with it. Yeah. Uh, well, you think they'd peel off some money to pay for some of those cars we always needed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I, uh, I think my first car was a, uh, early seventies Rambler ambassador. Nice. Bare bones. Former baby vehicle. Yes, it had been a black Navy car. Uh -huh. it, it had been repainted by Earl Scheib. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sample uh, can of touch-up paint was in the trunk. With, and, um, <laughs> Earl, I, I don't know, he was having a bad day. He forgot to close the vent window when they were oh, spraying, sprayed oh, half God. of the dash. Oh, uh, <laughs> when, you, uh, when you got in it, you had to if you're going through the car wash, you had to slide over to the middle uh, or, or the leak around the driver's door would <laughs> get you down real good. 
Uh, we have legendary stories about our cars uh, yeah. back in the day. You, I'm sure they were much worse when you first came in, in the 70s. Uh, because, I mean, my first car was a, a Plymouth Grand Fury, former Navy car. But at least it was a Grand Fury. It was in pretty good shape. But I heard these Ramblers and uh, all AMC products seemed like. That just Right. We were trying to save uh, American Motors, which <laughs> didn't really work very well. But no. we tried, you know. <laughs> yeah, we tried. The Pacers and the... <laughs> <laughs> and the ramblers and the oh yeah. my goodness that's good stuff so I, I wanted to ask you about before we finish up today I, I wanted to ask you about um the the death of the 10 sailors on USS Iwo Jima um we didn't <clears throat> talk about that yeah I I had just gotten to Naples in mm-hmm. uh, 1980 I uh, was still unpacking in October of 80 when uh Desert Shield was going on. Saddam had, had invaded, and we were. Um, or it's nineteen ninety, right? Nineteen ninety. I'm sorry, nineteen ninety. Um, building up forces in the Gulf, and uh, the Iwo Jima was a amphibious assault ship, carried a lot of Marines and helicopters and stuff, and um, it was thirty years old at the time. Was due for a desperately needed overhaul. And was diverted from the shipyard to to Bahrain to support the uh, potential uh, war with Iraq. There was a main steam valve that had been leaking and was going to have to be removed and to be repaired or replaced. And the ship had to shut down all the boilers go what the Navy calls cold iron in order to do that because it was the first valve off of the boiler. Uh, They couldn't do repairs anywhere else on the system because steam was leaking through it, even if they closed that valve. Right. Well, the uh, ship got into Bahrain and things slowed down a little. So, they contracted with some local folks for uh, repair that valve. So the the local folks uh, came on, took the valve off the ship, repaired it, came back, put it back on, covered it with um, that uh, plaster insulation stuff that uh, they use on those hot lines and then left and the ship fired up the boilers one morning, was going out to sea. They never made it out of Bahrain Harbor. The valve started leaking, uh, eventually blew completely off. The steam killed uh, 10 Navy personnel in the boiler room. Wow. Uh, the three unlucky ones lived for a day or so. Oh. Um that's uh, you know more gruesome than I would share with almost anybody. Yeah, sure. Uh, steam is a steam is a bad thing on a ship. Bad, bad thing, and you're trapped in this big steel box, two stories tall, and and uh, you know big as a house. Um, no way to shut it off. There was absolutely nothing they could do. Um, the I was in Italy. And uh, Bill Neal was in Sigonella. So they sent both of us to Bahrain. 
that time, the Bahrain office had, I think, two or three agents. They were, you know, busy with their ordinary stuff. They were overwhelmed. We flew in and uh, went out to the ship. The admiral, who was the area area commander for the time, mm-hmm. insisted that we come see him first. And we had to stand before the admiral, and he said, "I am uh, ordering you." N- not to conduct an investigation. He what? said, if you, if you do conduct an investigation as the a- area commander in a combat zone, I will uh, direct that all NCIS forces or NIS forces are, are put under my direct command and shut it down again. And this is still why we had a one-star admiral running organization. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Big Mac. Yeah. Um, so I kept my mouth shut. Yes, sir. Went out of the room. Uh, mad as I could be. Yeah, sure. And uh, so I was told, just be, <laughs> don't say anything. Said it's all being negotiated at, you know, JAG headquarters level mm-hmm. in Washington you straighten it out. Just it's going to take a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So kick back. Well, we, Bill and I went out to the ship. We started unofficially interviewing everybody that we could <laughs> to get the lay of the land. Yeah. You know, we, we weren't conducting an investigation. We were just, uh, just yeah, asking some questions. Yeah. So we, they had posted a guard on the um, entrance to the boiler room. They had a sign-in sheet. So we went down. We got some overalls from the ship because it looked like it was snowed down there. Yeah. And we we signed in and went down. We didn't take cameras or anything, so we wouldn't be accused of doing an investigating. <laughs> we went down and we, we documented everything we could. Um, end up doing a really nice um, crime scene diagram of the thing. Uh, we found out, we found the, the valve pieces, we found bolts with uh, where brass from the nuts had sheared off on them and uh, did everything we could do. And, and in a couple of days, we got the word, go ahead and proceed. The admiral's been convinced that he's making a mistake and he's relented. Somebody over him had told him, you know, shut up and get out of the way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And so we went up, you know, ahead and we just, you know, worked our butts off there interviewing the survivors and mm-hmm. anybody who knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. What it was, was the uh, contractors who didn't speak English. They were you know, third country nationals, as you get in the Middle sure. East. The, you know, yep. guys that, That's the labor. One was from Pakistan. I forget where the other was from. Maybe Bangladesh or something. Uh, concerned several people that they were Muslim. Mm-hmm. They had been, the bolts that had held a valve together originally were corroded. So they were a little hard to put back together. Mm-hmm. So they asked one of the sailors, Hey, where do you keep your spare nuts and bolts? And they pointed them to a, a storage bin in the corner and they went over there and got some size correct nuts and bolts and put them on but not the correct bolts no they weren't steel they were some 
brass or bronze alloy. Yeah. And once they got really hot, they got soft and the nuts actually gave before the bolts did. So ping, 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 they started popping on. Yeah. We had a sailor who survived this because he worked in another space, but his job was to take fuel samples mm -hmm. certain times every day to make sure. I do the sounding was. checks. Yep. He went down to do that, and he said it was like a jet engine was going off in there. Steam was blasting out. There was, you know, all the workers were trying to figure out what to do. There was a young lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant JG, in there. It was so loud he couldn't hear, but the Lieutenant JG gave him hand signals to get out, get out. So he goes yeah. back up the ladder. He's headed through the door, which opened onto the mess decks. When the valve blew off and the pressure was such, it blew him off his feet and across the mess decks. Wow. And he was able to tell us who was where right before this happened and what was going on. Mm. And that was our key witness. The others were the, you know, the engineer, uh, the other people who told us that these, these sailors had been working 23 hours a day, mm -hmm. little or no sleep. If they slept, they slept right there in the boiler room. Uh, and um, the petty officer who was supposed to have done a, a magnet check on the bolts and who signed off on it, mm -hmm. they actually carry a magnet in their shirt pocket. Yeah. He was dead, so we couldn't ask him sure. if he did or didn't do it or why he did it. Or... Wow. We'll never know. Yeah. We, we documented all those interviews, and a whole team of JAG officers flew in to uh, hold a hearing on the ship. We gave them our package, and it took two weeks. We gave them our package and left town. Mm-hmm. And I never heard a word about it after that. And wow. then I'm, I'm flying to um, Crete to do mm -hmm. an investigation and looking for a way to go back. And there's Bob Powers and, and uh, Big Mac, the Admiral. Wow. <laughs> and, and I said, Bob, where are you guys going? Back to Naples. Can I go? <laughs> <laughs> So we we're, were chatting on the plane, and uh, I said, Bob, was everybody happy with that uh, Iwo Jima investigation? Because it was the first, you know, I kept being told, first mass casualty since the Iowa thing, which Bob took the heat sure. on. Yeah, he did. Uh, he said, yes, they were. He said, Jag was just, yeah, they couldn't be happier with it. Mm -hmm. okay. Next thing I know, uh, Bill and I get a, a medal for that and mm -hmm. uh, you know a nice letter and then uh, another incident happens off the coast of Siganella. Mm -hmm. can't remember the carrier but one of the carriers is out there doing an exercise with uh, other ships and a Turkish destroyer mm -hmm. a uh, inspection team comes aboard to run inspections on the performance of the ship's crew on these different things. They wake them up in the middle of the night, start doing a, an attack scenario in the combat information center. One sailor 
gets there, his headset is missing. One of these inspectors had grabbed it. He goes and finds one. By the time he puts it on, he's missed what everyone else has heard is this is a drill. Oh boy. He doesn't know it's a drill. He's the guy who tells the missile battery to fire. Oh man. So the missile battery has locked in for exercise purposes on the Turkish destroyers. Oh no. Yeah. He hears the command fire. He passes it on to the missile battery. They fire two missiles and kill a couple of dozen Turkish sailors, disable this Turkish warship. Oh, goodness. Friendly fire. Okay. The end of this story is that uh, the, they were holding a board of inquiry on the ship. The agents on the ship had already done the investigation. They'd done a great job. They'd covered everything possible. They'd given it to the JAG guys. And, mm-hmm. and um, the, the board of inquiry was already started, but somebody at JAG thought that I was the only agent that could possibly do something like this, which wasn't the case, obviously. <laughs> so, so I said, well, what am, what am I supposed to do here? And they said, well, would you look over what the agents did and see if you see anything they missed? So I spent uh, a few hours going over their casework and handed it back to them and said, I don't know anything else you could have done. It's perfect. Yeah. So they, they let me go home. I got wow. two nights at the, at the SIG Inn. Good stuff. That was that, but that's a great, I remember that case with the Turkish because um, I, I just remember that I, I'm wondering how our two governments, you know, dealt with that. Well, they, they, yeah, I don't really know. I know they had a Turkish representative there at the, you know, sitting in on the board of inquiry, watching all the testimony there. And um, it was not a, you know, not a happy scene. Uh, sure. I know from reading the report, the, the U.S. sailor saved that Turkish ship from sinking and, you know, handled the mass casualties and flew them onto the, the carrier and, and, um, triaged them in the hangar bay there should have been some medals given out over that but i doubt if they were because of the cloud hanging over the whole thing oh sure sure that's usually what stops it so that was and that was in what year was that that was uh uh sometime we're between 90 and 93 I'm not okay. sure which. wow i yeah that goes back so anyway so um what so after after uh that time what where did you go from there as far as your career where did it take you um i went from naples to dallas and mm-hmm. i stayed in dallas uh, 13 years until i retired oh that's awesome and you worked some early you know because dallas is really uh, uh is a busy and robust office now because of all of the um engineering stuff that goes on with the five universities I know Texas Austin University of Texas Austin is big into research and development acquisition support. So it's one of the big offices now for research development and acquisition support and the joint um, efforts between economic crimes, CI uh, and CRIM at looking at problems from different perspectives. So it's, it's pretty good stuff. Yeah. I actually did one of the, what they were hoping was going to be the first economic espionage case mm-hmm. 
I worked with one of the traveling uh, CI guys on that and you know, spent about a year on it. And I said, you don't have anything here. You know, you've got a, a system mm-hmm. law in the system, which maybe you can patch, hopefully. Yeah, and, sure. uh, you know, some people that maybe made some judgment errors uh, trying to deal with that. And otherwise, uh, no problem uh, here. But yeah. uh, it, was, it was funny. I, I can't think of the guy's name right now. I'm sure you would know him. But uh, it was clear he had done nothing but that stuff for a while because right. he'd sit in on the interviews and then I'd, I'd write it up and I'd, I was required to write it up in an unclassified way. Okay. Uh, so I would give it to him and he looked at the first batch and he said, my God, you wrote down everything he said. I said, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> that's so funny. He's been at CI so long, FCI, he's, he's forgot what it's be to be a, a criminal investigator. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So that's, that's why you need to have those joint efforts to look at problems from different perspectives, because that's exactly a perfect example of, you know, yeah. what one sees, another doesn't. So. And they never told me any details about what I was really looking into. Sure. I didn't need to know. Uh, and uh, I'm glad I don't know because I have to worry about it. You have, you have enough memories. <laughs> you don't need yeah, any but, more memories. You know, but I, I had to be read in. I had to do all this and this and that, you know. And then, you know, and then what they finally told me, I said, well, my God, I hope we're doing that. Yeah. Oh I, I could probably go read about that in popular science next week. <laughs> so Dave, as you look back over a great career with uh, NIS, NCIS, um, I know that you have a lot of great memories and there's a lot of great people you worked with. Um, what would you say was your, your most rewarding um, memory of being with NIS, NCIS? Uh, that's really tough. Cause there's so many. And, yeah. uh, but I, I think it's just the people I worked with and, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the sailors and the Marines, the, the uh, other people in the office that I work with, the staff, yeah. uh, people with other agencies that, yeah. uh, I still keep in touch with, uh, sure. um, just great bunch of folks, you know, went through some crazy stuff together and in many cases and, and, uh, you know, kept each other from shooting the supervisor a few times. <laughs> you know, it's great. I'll tell you, Dave, I say to people all the time, you know, that I, so for the first right now, a lot of managers, uh, love to be interviewed and, and talk about stuff they did, but you're the first agent where I've only that you've, you're an agent your whole career and that's commendable. Um, yeah. but, you know, you just like working cases. You like, you were a criminal investigator. You were a guy that loved to work cases. Yeah, I, I did. I loved that. And I ended up working for people who I'd been their counselor at basic school. Yeah. You know, Glenn <laughs> Pfeiffer was one of them. <laughs> he'd, oh, he'd, he'd have some problem with another agent. He's just, Dave, come in here and close the door. I, I got to unload <laughs> on somebody. <laughs> yeah, you, you need that oracle to go to when you're a, a young manager. You know, it's like uh, I need somebody to talk to that I can trust, and he's going to give me the right direction on this. Yeah, Jody Jody Fletcher was whining one day 
he, uh, I don't know what the problem was. He was complaining about it. I said, Jody, that's why you get paid the big bucks. He stopped and he thought a minute, he's, you son of a bitch, you make the same thing I do. <laughs> that's I said, okay, and, I, and, you, and you have to deal with those problems. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, that's so funny. Oh, man, Dave, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. So uh, before I, I finish up, I want I do want to mention that after you retired in 2006, you went to work for the DA's office, the district attorney's office yeah. in Dallas. No, back in my hometown in Louisiana. Oh, wow. In, in Homer. Yeah. Oh, that's that's amazing. So you spent 10 years working for the DA's office in Homer. Can any want to elaborate on uh, some of the cool things you might have done there? Yeah, it was. Uh, there was a problem with municipal fraud, uh, employee, public official uh, theft of funds. And mm. that happened in several of the small towns there. Um, cleaning up cases that the sheriff's office of the police department had done. Mm -hmm. uh, one case, I, there was a murder. They interviewed no one except a suspect and then dismissed it. And the family victim's family complained and the DA gave me the okay to wade into it. And, and uh, we ended up sending the suspect to jail for 25 years. That's that. good. Awesome. Good work. We, I, we lost sure had many cases like that though. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some, I looked at a few cold cases. Mm -hmm. um, some of them were just beyond hope. Wow. We, knew, we knew who did it, knew how they did it, uh, just pulled out. But a lot of satisfying things. I had some fun, too. So <laughs> the guy subpoena in line at the chicken place one day. <laughs> He's waiting for his chicken, and I got him. <laughs> Surprise. Oh, man. Well, that is good stuff, man. Well, David, listen, I, I know that you're getting ready to have dinner there. Um, I appreciate the time this afternoon. Um, I think uh, you've had an amazing career and, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. Um, and I really look forward to reaching out to you in the future and uh, see if there's any, anything else we can talk about some great stories. So yeah, I, I love talking about it, Lee. And, uh, um, I appreciate, you know, what you're doing here, documenting all this stuff. So it's, mm -hmm. it's great. And, uh, I've got, you know, enough material for, uh, a good book. Hopefully I'll get to. Yeah. I want you to write that book. Cause I want to read it. I, I, I love book. I love, you know, any type of history. Um, and you know, it's, and we have an amazing history in this organization. And yeah. I, I tell people all the time that, you know, the things that we did during our time, just a small part of it. Um, oh, yeah. and, and I could just, I wish that were some of the old timers that I could still get a hold of like Jack Adelia and, and, uh, you know, and Bob powers, you know, yeah. um, it, so, you know, I, I appreciate your time this afternoon, and I'm going to put this together. And, of course, I'll, I'll send you a copy of it as well. All right. Well, uh, I'd be happy to do it again. And next time I'll tell you about getting a confession at a nudist camp. <laughs> See, that, that, <laughs> that's going to be one. OK, so what I'm going to do is I, I, I'm going to call you back on that because um, I'm going to start another podcast called Investigative Actions. Okay. <laughs> and, and it's just short stories. It'll be short stories. And that would be a great short story. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Listen, uh, Dave, pleasure talking to you. And I'll, I look forward to seeing you soon. 
Okay. Hopefully. All, All right. right. Take care, Lee. Wow, what a great interview with Dave Watson. Uh, I've known Dave for years, never worked with him, never had the pleasure of working with him, but I've known him for years. And he's just a super, super guy and quite talented, uh, as you heard. Uh, you know, after 30 years of service to uh, NIS and CIS, he then went on to his hometown of Homer, Louisiana, as a district attorney investigator. So he did some great work in his lifetime, and uh, it was great having him on the show today. I know that we could have gone on forever. I know that he has other uh, other stuff to talk about. Um, maybe we'll have him on the show uh, real soon again to talk about some of the stories. As you saw, he is a great storyteller. I hope you like today's show, uh, and if you do, it's available on your podcast, um, all your favorite podcasts, Spotify, Google, Apple, Podbean, there are others out there. I just don't know them. But if you like the show, please uh, give me a five-star rating and uh, continue listening uh, as, uh, as a like and subscribe, as they say. So I hope, once again, hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll be talking to you real soon. Thanks, and have a great day.